right. We are back, and this week we are War Dames and the pa- or the cast beyond. Um, and we are joined this week by the host of Through the Years. I mixed this up, sorry. Um, Trevor Dame. Trevor, how are you doing today? I'm doing better after hearing that. You like, you like War Dames? Uh, I thought, it, you know, Blood and Guts is kind of like War Dames. It's not quite, but close enough. Um, and this isn't even Blood and Guts' Anarchy in the Arena, but close enough. Quentin, how are you doing tonight? I'm fine. So, like, are Blood and Guts and Anarchy in the Arena just, like, interchangeable names for the same thing? Uh, no. Blood and Guts is really their war games. That's the double cage. Oh, oh, Blood and, Gu- oh, okay. Blood and Guts is the war game. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, alright. All right. And then okay. Stamp- Stadium Stampede and Anarchy in the Arena are interchangeable depending yeah. on the venue. Right, if they're in fucking uh, and they're in Florida, then they can then, right. like, then they can be stadium stampede. Yeah, that was something weird. I think on the press conference after the show, where uh, Tony Khan was like, he, he was talking about how like you know stadium stampede was during the pandemic, and then anarchy in the arena was the ability to do it. You know when they would do it back in front of crowds. But I think then he offhandedly said something like, it was if we ever do a stadium again and do it in the stadium, it'll be stadium stampede. So it's like. If it is, it's now not even like empty arena versus full arena. It's literally just if we're in arena versus a stadium. Like that's the yeah. difference of how we name this match. But get, getting more fiddly here. But. Yes, I like it. I like it. Honestly, it's like yeah. It's, it's depending on the venue, you know, the medium is the message, as they say. Um, so yeah, things <laughs> things are, are. I mean, I guess part of it too is stadium stampede was more cinematic, but that was also uh, just a piece of the pandemic situation, right? So. So, yeah. yeah, but uh, I guess theoretically they could do a stadium stampede. Um, they could also do a Calgary stampede, um, seeing as they're going mm-hmm. to be uh, running, I guess, during that, um, which I don't necessarily completely understand that. But before we move on to that, um, I've been saving AEW conversation for this episode. I've been saving everything, so I've got some very important AEW topics to start out with, and I've been. I have been surveying most Canadians that I know, Trevor, so I'm going to survey you on this one, too. Uh, Regina or Regina? It's Regina. The easy tip is rhymes with vagina. That's yes. what we all say to people that are having trouble with that. Uh, and, oh, uh, I've, never heard, I've never heard that string of letters pronounced as Regina ever in my life. Y- yeah, because otherwise you're just going to see that as a name. And, and yeah, I would always, pre- I would never see that as somebody's name and pronounce it Regina. I would say Regina, but for some reason, it, it, uh, I don't make the names. I just have to learn. <laughs> well, and a lot of wrestling fans who I've heard talking about it because of AEW uh, going to this Canadian tour have been saying it incorrectly. And that just has to do with the fact that Regina feels awkward in their mouths. Um, but we'll move on from that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Trevor, um, I guess, are you excited for AEW, who's uh, C- Canadian tour, multiple episodes of Collision? It's on the other side of the country from you, right? Yeah, I, I live in BC. I've had a couple friends that are like, Trevor, like, come down to Regina. And uh, I've been there once in my life. I don't know if I want to go back. And uh, no, I, I am probably not going to see any of these shows, although... It's like there's a chance to see CM Punk and Samoa Joe one time. Ooh, that would be tempting, but yeah, uh, I don't travel much. But yeah, it, it's weird because as a Canadian, we're still on the thing of they have not even yet announced if Collision will air on television in Canada. <laughs> like Rampage doesn't air legally in Canada, I do not believe. We only get Dynamite. So um, 
<laughs> it's weird the idea of and some people are saying that's that, that that maybe that's hurting the ticket sales and part of me feels like i don't know if that does because like when i was a kid i don't know how you guys feel this when i was a kid part of the i mean i'm in my late 30s part of the appeal of like oh i'm gonna get to go to like a nitro taping is oh i can my friends will see me on tv just when you know the the, the late 90s these where the internet was coming up but still not on the present we weren't all with social media and having our 50 minutes of fame so easily nowadays i feel like the idea of oh i'm gonna be at a tv taping like no, it's a TV TV. Just because your friend at home isn't going to be able to watch it, is that really an extra draw? Because some people I see are saying like, "Oh, if they if they make sure that Canadians know it's going to be on TV, then they'll buy more tickets to be in the building." And I'm like, I don't think that makes sense in 2023. Yeah, I uh, I have to agree with you. I do. I I think I I did tweet it at you, and I, I've mentioned this a couple times. I just think it's a really insane take to be like. Canadians are too stupid to realize that it's not a house show if it's not airing on TV in Canada, um, which I've kind of heard it presented that way. And I'm just like, okay, I think they'll figure it out. Like, it's just like the pay-per-views that aren't like, you know, they're airing on something else. They're not they're not airing on pay-per-view. But do you think if they ran a pay-per-view in Canada, people wouldn't think it was a pay-per-view, you know, like, yeah, um, but uh, I mean, they already uh, announced with the Calgary one. And granted, the Calgary one, I was just going to say, the Calgary one is doing, like, I think the best of the Canadian collision dates for ticket sales so far. But, like, they announced, like, a while ago that, hey, like, this will be the finals of the Owen Hart tournament. So even before right. they announced what the show was, they were kind of telling you, like, there's going to be something consequential here. Yeah, it's going to be important. Um, and the collision, I mean, they just announced officially that the first episode is going to have the return of CM Punk. Um, and that added about a thousand tickets and they've opened up 2000 more tickets for sale. Um, I guess with the assumption that the interest is bumped up enough for that to make sense. Um, Trevor, it's kind of weird because over the past few months, I mean, really since we had you on and talked about the scrum, uh, which obviously uh, for this pay-per-view, the scrum is just as important as that time. Um, it does feel like you've been painted by some people as being an anti-CM Punk guy. And from years of following you on the podcast and stuff, I can't see that as further from the truth. And you just mentioned wanting to see Punk and Joe if you had the chance. Like, where do you come down on this collision, Punk, all this stuff? Uh, yeah, it's funny. Like, this week I have been called a cuck for the Young Bucks who have me blocked on social media despite the fact that I... Uh, have had zero interactions. Although, Grant, I, I understand that is not rare. But, like, CM Punk, like, people will point to the fact that, like, I've had one negative <laughs> interaction with him online. He doesn't have me blocked or anything. Like, and I, I, I'm a, yeah, I'm a big CM Punk fan as a wrestler. I'm a person. I feel like he's a fascinating guy who has a lot of mixed stories. Um, I think the collision, like, I'm really excited for collision. Like, the idea, people keep saying about collision, like, the rumors, oh, like, I'm hearing lots of out-of-the-box ideas for collision. Like, I don't know what it's going to be, but I almost feel like part of me's hoping, I don't know if this would be great for business, but as a person that loves really early Ring of Honor to the point that they do, have wasted too many hours of their lives doing a podcast about it, the idea that maybe, like, collision could potentially be, like, CM Punk having a lot of influence and basically being the ROH Revival per Federation that Ring of Honor itself actually isn't anymore. Like, if Punk's just going to be like, yeah, let me have a lot of creative input, let me wrestle Samoa Joe again, you know, 
and I, I'm sure Tony Khan, you know, probably a big fan of all that early stuff too. Like, I've I have this this suspicion that this like collision could potentially end up being like completely my jam <laughs> like you know and maybe again maybe that wouldn't be the best thing for people for the 95 percent of people that did not watch 2005 ring of honor but i uh i'm all for it if that's what it turns out to be yeah sure quentin i mean we've been not we haven't been banning punk talk but we just have not been engaging in it do you want to add anything to punk chat at all here because i feel like you're pretty much done with it um i just Hope it's interesting. I mean, we could talk about it like as the as we review the pay per view, but like I think ultimately it comes back to a place of ever since that happened. I think to me and like a lot of other people, like even though AW has had, like there's no shortage of shortage of good matches, but ever since that happened, things just haven't been right. Things just have not been right in that company since all of that happened. And granted, you're still gonna have the weird vibe of everything it doesn't change mjf as champion and how like that's not really doing anything and it's kind of fail and, and it's kind of failing for lack of a better term for lack of a better term in my opinion at least creatively so it doesn't change those things but it makes me wonder okay you bring punk back we saw firsthand like he how dynamic of a force he still is when he came back to wrestling and how much he meant to the company so having him back does that immediately po- like poses a boon for the product and does it get does it get better again is the magic gone after like how how weird things got like i don't know i'm just kind of hoping for like if they're going to introduce another show another another 2 hour show that it's good and that maybe AEW can get back to like a more like stable place yeah and uh Quentin, like last night during dynamite uh, seeing as you already mentioned uh the finals going on were there any like finals games or anything going on last night during dynamite uh not that i know of um i don't know if the, okay. I don't know if the hockey final i don't know if the i don't know if the, the stanley cup is on but the nba but the nba finals uh just started today so if like the, okay. if the ratings were bad last night then that has nothing to do with the playoffs oh no not not about that but uh, i just wanted maybe context okay, okay, okay. to Within 24 hours of announcing Punk, um, a thousand more tickets moved, right? So it is kind of like, okay, well, and then how much, because AEW crowds, fans can be a little bit fickle about watching stuff live. So you think how many people who still don't even know that he's officially been announced yet that are likely to buy tickets knowing that he's announced, you know, and that would come down to people that are going to watch the show on the T plus seven or whatever. Um, which is, you know, obviously very likely people who are not on social media, things like that. So we talk about him moving things, stuff like that. Um, my biggest concern, and this kind of crossed my mind earlier talking to, you know, past guests of the show, Joseph, about like the the level of quality of matches and what you're presented on something like Rampage. Like this week's Rampage looks really exciting for wrestling weirdos and sickos who want to see stuff like Lee Moriarty versus Shibata um, and Amy Sankara versus... Um, uh, Willow Nightingale, right? Like those are matches that excite me quite a bit. And one concern that I have, people talk about, oh, Collision is going to be one more thing to watch and open the door for people to check out. Um, and people who make that argument also make the argument that Collision has to be an A show, or else people are not going to watch it. Um, and I just think you can't really say both. Like I think that having a 
clear B show or a C show or whatever is a good shoulder programming for freaks who want to watch it and having a clear A show that is the main show that the normal people can watch just that and that be enough is honestly the better bet to keep you from getting that burnout situation. Um, that's why like getting rid of dark and dark elevation in lieu of having another television show that you're saying you're going to present as an A show, I think is actually much worse and more likely to drive away the fans who say this is becoming too big of a commitment. I don't want to spend five hours every week watching AEW so that I know what stories are going on. Um, so unless you do a really hardcore brand split and make it so people can choose a show then follow that one only and what's the extra stuff if they want um or you make one of the shows a clear b that's not the main show i just don't think like i i do think that the idea that like you could start to burn out fans is very likely especially now where it feels like they're coming off of a down period where a lot of people did not like this show and are kind of ready to step off the ride and I just uh, I just wonder if that's if this is honestly kind of the worst timing overall for something like this. Yeah, um, it, it, yeah, it, it, it is interesting. Also, it's you know, Tony Khan has done this before, where he's gone through Rampage and was like, he said, "Oh, Rampage won't be a B show," and then it's gonna then it turned out to be an A. Show. And I think the problem with you know talking about how these shows are gonna be huge is there's going to be a limit to what all these shows can draw that's going to be lower than dynamite because rampage was always going to have a limit because that airs at friday nights at 10 p.m which is a pretty bad time slot um and rampage going to air prime time on saturday night so it's going to be filled with not competing with nothing but big sports you know wwe pay-per-views ufc events and and people's social lives. There are actually a few wrestling fans that have social lives. I am not one of them, but there are, there are some. And so it's going to be one of those things where I, I assume it's always going to be have to, they're, they're getting paid a decent amount and they're going to have to try harder than they've tried before to do a second show. That's of major importance because CM Punk's going to be largely living there. But like at some point, you're, if you know, if you're only doing two thirds or half of the rating of Dynamite, there's they're going to have the same question they've had for all these other shows, which is how much, how many of our resources, how much want to kind of shift away from Dynamite, which is our money maker and kind of our tentpole thing, to make these other shows that will always never have the potential to do what Dynamite does feel big on a level close to them, which. I don't know how this is going to turn out. It's just one of the interesting things about this. Tim, you're muted. <laughs> I was just asking if you had any thoughts on uh, on any of that there, but uh, I I will, I guess, feel free to move on. I guess the next thought that I just, something that crossed my mind, I heard, I think maybe somewhere was, was, the writer's strike and when the ball got rolling on this and that it does seem like it's actually a short-term deal for collision. How much of this was reaction to let's get more AEW programming because it's impervious to the writer's strike situation, um, which does not sound insane to me. Really? It would actually be a pretty smart move. Um, test the water, see how it does. If it's worthwhile to keep it going good. If it's just a patch to get you through tough waters, then also good, whatever. Um, I could just, I could definitely see something like that. Um, 
and then we'll get uh, a podcast in about you know eight to ten years where they review every episode of the short run of Collision and talk about how it was actually <laughs> the best show in the history of wrestling that no one was paying attention to. Um, but uh, I guess we can move on to the pay per view. Um, unless you guys have any other things you want to talk about before we do this, I'm good. I think we're good. I think anything AEW related yeah. will like naturally come up during the flow of conversation. So yeah. I think I think we're yeah. good. And because of that, I do kind of I thought of I was, I was tempted to do the start with the main and go the other way, but because there's so I think there's so much to talk about about the company and everything, I feel like the flow of the pay-per-view actually makes sense to start from the beginning. Um Quentin, did you watch the buy-in? <laughs> that no, no. No, no. I, I, I like, like, see, like sometimes it's, it's actually a match I would like be interested in, and I just forget, and I just forgot to watch this one. No, definitely not. No, no. Trevor, you check out this buy-in match or the rest. Yeah, of the and show? actually, I, I was gonna ask you guys what's your opinion on this because I'm honestly split about this, and I mentioned this on Twitter. I got a, like a ton more leaning to one side than the other, which is obviously like the last two buy-ins they've shifted from doing a lot of trying to basically making it an almost an extra hour of the pay-per-view and, you know, cramming a bunch of matches on. Like, I think the one everyone talks about is the Forbidden Door pre-show, which had really good matches. And it was four matches in in an hour. So it was, yeah, it was basically like an extra hour of the pay-per-view. And now the last two shows, they're down to one match and they've changed it completely where it's very WWE where... Renee with guests are in the crowd kind of doing just the talk to the camera pre-show RJ cities in the back doing people kind of like almost like a red carpet type. And you know, there's two ways to look at it. You can look at it and go, you're burning the crowd out less by having less matches. There's a theory behind that. Although I don't know if that worked on this show or, and you know, you, that gives you more time to do a hard sell for the pay-per-view or the other way is like, is it a better way to sell pay-per-views to get people really exciting matches to give them a taste of what they could be seeing? And isn't that just more entertaining and more value? And, you know, I can, I can see both arguments. I think on a show like this, I was missing the old <laughs> AEW pre-shows, yes. but it's interesting that like, they've definitely changed at a time where people are starting to wonder, like, I've seen a lot of people are saying, and not without merit, like, oh, is AEW TV in general becoming more, having more WWE tropes? It's interesting that in the last two pay-per-views, they've really kind of turned it into a WWE-style pre-show. Yeah, and that does, again, like you're talking about, we'll we'll lead into the conversations that we want to have about the company. That does speak to something that I've thought about and that, you know, I kind of wanted to to put out there maybe for people and, and I don't know what see because I just you hear these opinions that people have about all this and that that the company seems like it's going more in the direction of WWE style and all this stuff what's going on there and it does to me okay to answer I guess the main question that you have there Trevor like this kind of buy-in I don't know um because you know the argument that people who try to act like they're serious wrestling pundits say is like well if this sells late pay-per-views then that's what matters let me see the numbers and I mean I'm not a you know, a businessman. I don't care about the numbers. I'm not invested in AEW and I don't make anything if they sell more pay-per-views. So my answer is, I don't like this and I don't want to watch it. Yeah. Even RJ City, who I enjoy in pretty much any context, I don't really enjoy him in this context. I watched the, the, the bit with Arn Anderson. It was funny enough, but it wasn't his best. The match here was very bad. I've talked about it, but I, my opinion is that your opening match, I kind of follow, fall into the, the PWG, 
kind of way of looking at the opening match is that a lot of times they would put Brian Cage out there in the opening match because it's a good way to give the crowd a bunch of fireworks because the first match on a show, a lot of times you need to burn off the crowd who's just excited to be at a show. Like a lot of the crowd has yeah. a bunch of extra energy in the first match that they just want to get out. And it doesn't really matter how good the match is. It doesn't really matter if there's much of a story. They're not really going to remember it or even be necessarily interested in it. They just got to get their wiggles out and get into a wrestling show. And this kind of match is not doing that. This match is not giving the crowd. If anything, this is killing the crowd who could be hot first thing, but instead they're getting just burnt out by the first match. Um, the bigger picture, and I you know I'm a little bit steamrolling um, here, is the WWE side of things. And I do think, and I've said it enough times that I think that it's there's a there was a power vacuum that was created by the brawl out. The elite and punk were gone, and Tony was looking for people to fill in and take those roles. And I think that I've always kind of pointed at Chris Jericho and said, I you know people talk about Chris Jericho has became kind of Tony's right hand man during that time period. And Chris Jericho's inclination is to go more WWE. But even on this scrum on this night post this show. One person who it didn't really cross my mind until he said it, and maybe this is something that a lot of, you know, hardcore wrestling nerds are not going to be happy to hear, is that another person who got a lot more interested and creative and got a lot more in Tony's ear during this time period has been Brian Danielson. And Brian Danielson, throughout his entire career, has always kind of had a flair for the hokey bullshit. He likes wwe style wrestling he always has he likes regular wrestling too but you know that he likes these kind of goofy storylines he likes pretending to wrestle bears and and weird backstage segments and all this kind of junk so i hate to say it but all the wrestling nerds out there who are upset that aew is looking too much like wwe unfortunately it's coming from the greatest wrestler of all time brian danielson um so i just you know again like i said i just kind of hate to to say that but i feel like it's probably true yeah, but I mean, his angle is actually his storyline. This pay per view segment was honestly like probably the high point, even though it wasn't like a very intricate, complicated story. That was the storyline at a time where people were saying, you know, this wasn't a very good good pay per view cycle. This was the one, his you know the elite versus BCC was the closest to just guys beating each other up, you know, brawling fun compared to a lot of the other storylines on this show. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but, but that's also yeah, but, the rest yeah, of BCC. Yeah, but the point. Yeah, but and at the same time, like whenever we're talking about like creatively, yeah, like whatever Danielson in has still been like has still been pretty good for the most part. But at the same time, I think that's more so maybe a reference to like just kind of like the uh, uh, layout and formatting choices, like how they like how they want to approach things sometimes, and like that going back to like say like a change like the Renee and RJ City dominated dominating the pre-show as opposed to how it used to be like even if that wasn't a danielson thing or something that danielson had like much thought on if that was purely from tony and like maybe like what wasn't coming from the, from uh like the jericho and danielson like we may be thinking like it's just something that's a testament to like hey there's like maybe something there to these guys that are like you know so you know for lack of a better term wwe-ified you know or like you know wwe-brained that this is what they think people should be doing. Yeah, it could just I mean, be as easy as two as they hired Renee, and I really like Renee. Exactly, yeah, backstage yeah. interviewer. But like, it's like, well, this is something she did. This was a big part of her job. So, like, you bring Renee Young in, maybe they just figure, well, this is what you did. We'll let you do it here. I, I could even see that being the mindset. Mm -hmm. Well, I, 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 think that, I think I think I think that's a fair thing too, because like, 
if you have Renee as part of your team, like you want to use Renee as much as you can, like she's valuable. So yeah. I, I get that. So I get that. I, I, I see that, but I also could see that being like a cart before the horse kind of thing where I think it might be the inverse. It might be a, they wanted to hire Renee specifically to do this kind of thing as opposed to well, we hired her. What are we going to do with her? You, you know what I You get what I mean there? Um, yeah, I also think there's a happy medium, right? This debate's gotten so binary online. Like, I feel like you could do a good, a, a two-match hour-long pre-show, still with some hype, and maybe put better matches on the pre-show than, like, the last will and testament of the Hardy Boys. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, maybe everyone would be happy then. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, that's definitely true. But, yeah, this this trio's match, I, uh, I guess, Q, if you have any other thoughts or anything else on the rest of the stuff, Oh no! We can, we, we you know we, you can go you can go ahead in the back, in the match. Okay, this match itself was like I mean, Hook basically trying to carry his whole side of things. Uh, Page and and the Gun Brothers are are relatively fine, serviceable wrestlers. At different times, have been good, but um, you know, I mean, I think I said this out there, but you know, this was this is really a testament to the problem with AEW right now. The Gun Brothers were tag team champions less than two months ago. And now they're on the pre-show in a really who-gives-a-fuck match. Hook is just completely in stasis. And the Hardy Boys, I mean, you do not need the Hardy Boys under contract if this is what they're doing. This is not the kind of wrestlers that you need for something just to fill out the pre-show, right? Like, that does not make absolutely any sense. The point of having the Hardy Boys is to have them in a big position over with the crowd. And if they can't do that, then you don't need them. And then you've got the bullshit contract storyline that feels like it's been going on since the beginning of this company that is just like so convoluted and pointless. It's just, I mean, this is just, I mean, I hate to say it because there are some wrestlers I like in here. This is like, just cut everybody. Just everybody in this match does not need to be under contract is basically where I'm at. Uh, I wouldn't agree with that, but it, it, the, the contract, I was, I was going to joke, like you don't like the never ending uh, who owns whose contract. I, I think it was, I think... Something you do when you write a lot is you like a lot of your worst impulses come to the to the surface. You really like when you write a lot, you start to see, oh, I use this phrase a lot. I structure things like this a lot. I think with bookers is like that too. It's trying to see like every booker has certain tropes they like to go back to and again and again. And I think it's like fascinating that one of Tony Khan's things he's fascinated by is the idea of people buying other people's contracts. Like that's he just keeps going back to that to the point where now it's like we're doing a storyline where you had my contract. Now I own your contract, but um yeah, I, I, all I could focus on in this match was the Hardys because it's 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 weird. Like for people that have taken the punishment they've taken at their age, like they're not like it's not like they can't do anything. But knowing who they were and how probably physically rough, you know, how much it probably hurts, and knowing all Jeff Hardy's problems, they're 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 an act where even when they do okay at this point, it's hard to watch as I'm just kind of grimacing and worrying. And the thing the only thing I really wanted to talk about with this was they do that thing late in the match where Je Jeff Hardy sells like he has a knee injury that I thought was legit, but and then he goes at one point to the top rope afterwards and he completely slips and eats shit. Now Brian Alvarez later said that he was told that was all a work, that was intentional. I, I just got to say this. I doubt that, but if it was, that's even dumber because I don't know why a guy who's physically thrashed, who's coming back from his latest bout with, you know, 
substance abuse. You know, he has a history of showing up in no condition to work. Why you would want to in your in one of your your most prominent match back since you've come back work a fictional story where you get hurt and start screwing up things and look completely just yeah like th- there was no payoff in the match for that like it just it it led to nothing like i i it, and to me the sad thing is that's the most memorable part of the match no it i have the exact same thought which is like that hardy came jeff hardy came across like just incre- incredibly sloppy and everything he did looked weird and not good and and like it just out of sorts and if it was intentional i mean maybe it's a shout out to sabu who's on the card right the intentional botcher um but like you said this is not the guy to do this angle or this storyline with because because of his history i mean his right now he should be on the straight and narrow not playing this feels a little bit too much like you know like the the cm punk storyline where like you're really fucking playing off of real life substance abuse issues and this guy just can't control himself and all this like i i don't know like especially because you're rehashing it on a lower stage where it doesn't feel like it means anything it doesn't make any sense to do it again um and it yeah it, like you said it doesn't pay off in the match um it was just a bummer like and that's the what I, and that was like your selling match before the pay-per-view just like this huge kind of bummer of like oh these guys that are like have near hall of fame careers or some people would probably say hall of fame like they're old and time is catching up to them. Like it was just a really depressing note to start the wrestling. Well, okay. And now speaking of a, of a doesn't pay off in the thing, doesn't make kind of make sense in the context thing. So Quentin won't even really know this because you didn't see the buy-in, but they close out the buy-in with all of the entrances for the 21 man AEW international title, blackjack battle Royal match. Right. Um, and Okay, I get it. You're trying to hype people up right before you go to pay-per-view to check out this cool thing that you're about to see. And I under I kind of understand that you can't pull this off as seamlessly as I would like, but it does seem like it defeats the purpose to do all that, like, oh my god, we're gonna, you know, hit this and right when this pay-per-view starts to get this big match, you need to, you know, pay money so that you get to see the match. And then the pay-per-view starts with a fucking video package. So now I'm like, okay, so all those wrestlers are just standing out there. I'm not getting this hot start that you just teased me on in the buy-in, like, oh, right, the second this pay-per-view starts, we're doing this Battle Royal. And then the Battle Royal opens up with half the competitors stay on the floor, they slowly start to trickle in, who's in, who's out, who's still part of the match, who's not. Like, I just felt like you completely missed the boat on the payoff on what you were setting up in the buy-in there by not delivering, like, the second that the pay-per-view hit, we're into a hot match. Um, I guess... Quentin, what did you think about opening up the pay-per-view like this? And the fact that you didn't see that, did it, did you think anything about it? That you basically came in to the show and there's just a bunch of wrestlers around the outside of the ring? Um, Again, I guess I didn't really think anything about it because this, like, AEW just does that sometimes. So I would just come in and think of it like that's just what AEW does. Sometimes they'll just have a battle royal start the show. Um, But, it, again, like, again, like, battle royals are always built up for, like, the last, like, Four or five people that are in the that are in the match, and then when they get to that point, uh, that's really what matters and what people and what people remember. And I still think they delivered on that front of things. But like, I guess honestly, it didn't really register for me because AEW just just does that sometimes. Yeah, I guess that's yeah, I guess that's true. Go ahead. 
the the uh, the the way in opening the pay-per-view like that didn't bother me. It was more the pre-show ending with ten minutes of ring entrances because I feel like yeah. again if you're if you're trying to focus more on your pre-show being just less wrestling, more selling pay-per-views is the last thing you want to give the last ten minutes just. 20 mid-card ring entrances with no nothing else like typically wouldn't you want to really run down the card one more time have the announcers really hard sell it even like that one pre-show where you had eddie kingston just giving an impromptu like really good promo he's just basically telling you how big the pair is going to be instead like who's going to be like oh wow this match i already knew that was announced oh juice robinson's entrance well now i was on the fence about buying the pay-per-view but now i have to buy it like it, it was just it, it was it seemed like it was literally again like a symptom of like Quentin mentioned how you know AEW's done this before. And I feel like it's another symptom of AEW problem, which is they're just trying to fit so much shit in. It was just like this doesn't really serve anything except now we don't have to do all these entrances on the pay per view. Yeah, which you still could have gotten away with if you were just playing a video on the buy in and had everybody come out in the building and we just weren't watching it. So, um, the match itself was pretty good and. As I even though I talk shit about people being outside and not coming in and all that stuff, it really did help because that's been like the long running kind of joke. If you pay attention to like Alvarez and and Tom Lawler talking about battle royals, and it's been on the Brian and Vinny show forever. And I think even uh, I was gonna say Nick Wayne, Jesus, I almost forgot his father, Buddy Wayne, uh, talking about people who are trying to do spots in battle royals and how stupid they are. Um, because wrestling is different now, and you're not going to have a battle royal where you don't do spots if it's not like a royal rumble style people enter throughout the match you can't really do a bunch of spots with the ring filled with everyone so it kind of does serve that master to have a ton of different groups and heels basically saying we're going to stay outside and not join in until later on so that the ring isn't as crowded and i think it did help um you know having the lucha world order team up here and really kind of feels like they're doing it on both shows basically it's fun that very in WWE as well with the LWO kind of thing going on. Um, just kind of like, okay, like <laughs> Bandito is a best friend, but for some reason he also teams up with the Lucha Brothers and Commander. Like, I don't know, it, it was fun to watch and they did some cool stuff, but it was just like, there's absolutely nothing to that. Otherwise it doesn't really make any sense other than they're all luchadors and I guess baby faces. Um, but this is kind of the highlight of a battle royal to me, or, you know, a good version of a battle royal where you tell a lot of different storylines on here that could have been matches on the pay-per-view, but you just don't have enough time for everybody to have a match. So you kind of move forward stuff like Ricky in the in the Bullet Club Gold, uh, the, the stuff with the best friends and, and mogul affiliates, Lucha Brothers, all that stuff kind of gets different pieces in here, um, which is a positive, I think. Maybe some people are like turned off by it or whatever. The stuff with like Swerve and Keith Lee and then and what are they? The natural, uh, naturally limitless, whatever that tag team is with Dustin. Like, I thought it was really solid. I think it's crazy the people who kind of say like this is the you know third best match on the show, um, just because like I just I don't get how down people were on the rest of the stuff. I do feel like there was a lot of self fulfilling prophecy on the card overall for a, for a ton of people's opinions of the show. Um, but uh, but yeah, what did uh, what did you guys think of the match? I guess. Uh, I I I agree. Like I thought this was very good. I um it was maybe boring on slightly too long to me, but I completely agree. Like with what you said about 
I think it's ridiculous when wrestlers are just allowed, in so many in this case, to sit and watch like half the Battle Royal before choosing to get in. But at the same time, that avoids like one of the things that makes Battle Royals boring a lot of the time, which is there's no room for anyone to work for like the first two thirds. And so you have a lot of people just holding on to each other against the ropes for a long time. And here, like you basically had the stage kind of the ring open up for guys to take turns having like actual entertaining sequences. So it's kind of ridiculous, but I take that trade and uh, yeah, I, I thought it was one of that. It was a good battle royal. Lots of guys got to look good. I mean, Brian cage even got uh, probably one of his best times to shine in AEW history. I you know he always works. I think best in places where he kind of just gets to pop off for a couple minutes and really show his stuff. And and not have to like expand that out. Um, the Lucha guy, I, I liked, I loved that, uh, that spot where Commander's doing one of his ridiculous rope walks that's even stupider in the context of a battle royal. And Jay White eliminated him there. Like, uh, that was one of those spots that it gets great heel heat and it makes perfect sense. Um, I was bummed when Swerve and Keith Lee had a standoff in the middle of the ring to pretty much zero reaction in the middle of this because i felt like there's an alternate universe where they've done a better job not completely hanging those guys out to dry where that same moment gets a big reaction and i felt bad i was like you guys deserve better than like finally having a standoff here and the crowd just treating it like lesser than a lot of the other stuff that was in this battle royal but overall yeah i thought this was pretty fun a lot of action and a lot of guys got a little bit of a moment uh yeah, basically. Um, like I said, I'm not like a super uh super into battle royals unless like there's exceptions or like really just like outstanding ones. Like thinking of like the 1992 Rumble or like the fucking like CWF Rumble from from 2016 or whatever. Like it's like there's like not like really like standout Rumble battle royal matches to me in terms of like layout or what makes things interesting. So. Ultimately, like I said, it always comes down to, like, what did they decide to do in, like, the last, like, five or six participants? And what did they decide, how did they decide to do it and space it out? Stories they decide to tell, the last two, and how much time they get to wrestle each other. Like, that's what ultimately, like, matters the most to me and what gets the most, the most of my attention. So when you get down to uh, Orange Cassidy and Swerve, I thought that was, I thought that, I thought that was really great. I love the finish and just... Orange Cassidy revving up like he's about to do this big final blow to just casually kick out Swerve's arm and the way he like fell trying like gasping get like grasping for the grasping for the top rope was really good <laughs> so I so I enjoyed the aspect of things but um yeah like for me like you're not you're never gonna get like a super like a uh, high praise from a battle royal just because it's like uh you know it's just just a battle royal for me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like Battle Royals quite a bit, if I'm perfectly honest. I think I like them better than a lot of people, um, and probably more than a lot of people think that I would. Um, so, you know, I was pretty high on this. But like I said, I still think it's crazy to be like, this was the third best match on the show. Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, definitely had some good stuff, and it was a lot of fun. Um, I do wonder where the fuck you go with Orange here. It feels like basically you could just continue doing this forever, but I just don't know, like, what you do next. But I did like that kind of some of the stuff that came out of this continued to be a focus on dynamite you know from last night so it wasn't like this was just nothing so we do continue to move forward and see where we go but um i just i guess kind of my thing is i just don't see taking the belt off of orange really and like that's kind of the weirdest part about a, a title reign is like just not seeing how it makes sense to end it like i just 
I don't think that anybody who beats him really gets much out of it. Like, I don't know how you how anybody gets any real steam out of beating him for this title, but um, I guess we'll get there and it'll probably be worth it. Um, do you guys want have any thoughts on that at all, or can move forward? Uh, yeah, I would just say about Orange. Like, I I feel like I'm getting to the point where his reign's gone good enough where he might actually have something to kind of like. It actually will mean slightly something when, I, when he loses, but that's like. Who does he lose to? I'm thinking, like, who deserves it? And then what's the identity of the belt? Because the belt had no idea. It was nearly brand new before he got it. And he's turned the identity of it basically to be it's the workhorse belt where Orange Cassidy has a good match every, pretty much every dynamite. So it's like, do you just put it on somebody else who you feel can fill that role and just have them say, hey, whoever wins this, you, you know, you better be prepared to be working every Wednesday, you know, like, I'm I'm sure they could find someone to fill that role, but I just kind of wonder, like, is this going to be another thing where it's got a little bit of momentum now, but then once it's done with Orange, maybe it just goes back to being just a thing, just a random thing. Yeah, yeah I yeah, definitely. That's kind of where I think, where I say, like, who gets anything out of it. Um, follow this up with Chris Jericho versus Adam Cole. Uh, I mean... I don't know. This is just so fucking bad. But I think I do think one thing that one thing that it did cross my mind. I think uh, we all were con- we all misheard. We were all confused. We should have seen this coming because you know everyone thought Adam's Cole music said it's all about the boom, but it was actually saying it's all about the boo, uh, you know, the sabu. So we should have known that this was eventually coming around. Uh, Quentin, what did you think about this dog shit ass match? Oh, I guess maybe Quentin is gone <laughs> um, or muted. I don't know. But either way, or maybe I'm dead. I don't know. Uh, Trevor, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. All right. Um, well, I'll kind of give my... <laughs> yeah, no, no. Well, I got my go. thoughts on it. I'm fine. I uh, I just I could not fucking believe that they opened up this match with it basically feeling like a knockoff of Anarchy in their arena with all the hectic everything going on when you've got the, that in the main event as the big fucking thing. Um, again, it speaks to what I was saying that Chris Jericho has too much control and is probably allowed to just do whatever he wants. Um, because I can't imagine anybody with any kind of quality control would say, sure, do like a mini version of the main event at the beginning of this match. Um, when it would be much better to have started this out as a hateful brawl between these two and then get the seconds in and sprinkle in the action from the people outside throughout instead of doing it that way, where it just feels like completely taking the steam off of that. Um, it's very weird to see Cole fail in this setting because historically that's kind of been his thing. You think about the um, the kind of the hybrid fighting matches with Kyle, the, you know, being someone who always delivers in the fights without honor um, settings and things like that, like just constantly good at these kind of matches, but just absolutely um, like just dead fucking dog shit match here brings almost no heat. I mean, I guess a big part of it is they tried to build this around like being more of a fight in all of those matches. A lot of times what made it work with him was just building up set piece gimmicks and, and doing big like uh, novelty spots with, you know, weapons and things on the outside. I mean, here he was trying to do a lot more like this was about it being a roughneck fight. And that's just not what Cole is best at. Um, And then the finish just felt incredibly weak. Um, 
but like a, a callback to to a better a much better wrestler with who was part of this match with Roddy uh, because Roddy's PWG title run it felt like every one of his matches when things would get out of control and stuff was going wild at some point a chain would show up that was kind of Roddy's sign- I always love like when you have like a signature weapon um, that just for some reason that's your thing and for Roddy and his title run and, and his interactions with with uh, Kyle O'Reilly as champion in PWG the chain would always seem to show up at some point um, so you kind of had that to me it felt like that callback but even still it just did not uh, work and, and the finish I thought was incredibly flat and weak but I mean Trevor did you actually love this no uh, this was the least enjoyable match on the sh- on the show for me um yeah, I this felt like like I am probably in the bottom half of people for for in terms of being a fan of Adam Cole's in ring. Like I don't hate it. There, there's some matches I really like, but he's not re- not. I'm not huge into him as a wrestler, but he's capable of good stuff. Um, you know, Chris Jericho at this point in his career, he can have something good. You know, it's kind of a lot of the draw his opponent. Um, you know, how well he's adhering to his own diet, things like that. But um, this, yeah, this felt like kind of like the worst, the worst um, of bo- kind of like the worst of both guys. Like it was just playing into things that it was, it was, if I had reminders of like Jericho's bad gimmick matches with, with Moxley back when he was Dean Ambrose and WWE, they had them fumbling with the fire extinguisher for a million years. And it was one of those things that also started, you know, it was the first of three gimmick matches on a show, uh, a, a big plunder matches, at least. I mean, if you want to consider the ladder match that it was also the, uh, the first of many matches that had a ton of like interference and, and bells and whistles. And in a way I want to complain because I think there was too much of that stuff on the show, but in this match, like, honestly, that's what's my favorite stuff was, the Sabu bit at the start and Brie, I mean, um, Britt Baker running in, <laughs> that would have been interesting, but uh, Britt Baker running in, you know, like those were the most interesting parts. And the rest of the match was just kind of this kind of plotting match. And, you know, it, I do will say this match was kind of in a uh, tough spot where, you know, AEW's run a lot of bloody violent brutal gimmick matches and so there's now a really high bar especially like in a world where it wasn't we're not very far removed from you know moxley and hangman's last match where everything feels kind of cartoonish you're not going to like the craziest extremes at this point and i think i think jericho already kind of tends to the cartoonish sometimes and it was just fascinating to see two guys that are pretty big stars in this company on the second match on the show get so little reaction for so much of the match. Like at one point you can see Jericho almost kind of panic where he just starts firing the fire extinguisher in the air at nobody because it's like, <laughs> you can just see him thinking, and I'm, he's the first of many wrestlers on this card. You can see that are from this crowd that's going, please. He's doing the Jeb Bush, like, please clap, please do something for me. He's just, like they're kind of desperate and you usually don't see that on these shows. And it was, it was kind of wild to see. Yeah. He's saying like, look at me, look at me, everyone look at me. Um, yeah, basically is what's yeah. going on there. Um, Quentin, what do you think about that? I know, <laughs> I know you had a, uh, you were gone a little bit there and threw everything off. Um, what do you think about, cause you know, Trevor talked about Jericho there and his issues in the past and that, but, but 
Cole, because I mentioned at the beginning of mine, is just Cole's history of the hybrid fighting rules, the fights without honor, and the guerrilla warfare matches, that these matches tend to be his strong suit. Why do you what do you think about this match and him not delivering and, and again Jericho kind of hearkening back to his worst in these kind of settings? I think Adam um really just depends on if you're if you're putting him in there with a good guy, like you're gonna usually get something pretty solid. I think if I go back to thinking about like the Adam Cole and Hangman stuff, like obviously Hangman Page is a better is a way better wrestler than Chris Jericho. So like that stuff is gonna like even if it wasn't great, it's a lot better than like what we're getting here. This was this was bad, man. This was bad. I don't know like if everyone like universal like hates this thinks it's like a terrible match but like i think this is just awful i thought like it was clunky and weird and just nothing about it really like meshed or clicked for me at all i just i hated i hated everything about this um and adam wasn't great here but just this isn't a thing i'm really putting on uh adam entirely like sometimes wrestlers just, just don't have great chemistry and like Adam Cole and Chris Jericho just wouldn't be two people I would expect to have great chemistry either. But at the same time, like it's fucking 2023 Chris Jericho, like the great matches and great performances or whatever, like are very few and far between. Like when when we get stuff like how good um like the Eddie Kingston match was or some shit. Like that's like way rarer than like this stinker here versus uh versus um uh versus Cole. And we just went through a similar situation with Brian Danielson and Jericho, where like Danielson and Jericho on the pay-per-view was like one of the worst Danielson matches that we've all seen a ton of Danielson. Like one of the worst Danielson matches we can recall seeing in like a long fucking time. So I think there's a lot of play here. You can say Cole's not great. Back chemistry between the two, uh Jericho not being good, but like it just all culminates to just a really, really just bad match and something that wasn't a good omen for the rest of the show. And you know, you you pointed something out there that I think got overlooked by some people or, or made like a weird counter argument that I just think doesn't make any sense, which is that like people kind of pointing at this and saying, like, oh, this is an aberration because because you know, <laughs> Trevor talked about the zone diet. Um that like Jericho is kind of coming off of what I personally even referred to as the run of his career, wrestling-wise, the best and most consistent he had ever been. And I heard people kind of use that as an argument to say, like, oh, well, this is an aberration because he just came off of such a great run. And I'm kind of like, why would you look at the, the you know, the preponderance of data and make the opposite, like, argument than what, like, seems to be the most uh, statistically, like, uh, uh, relevant, which is that like Jericho has been bad a lot more than he's been good, which is what you just said there. And the fact that he had a run of being good does not mean that like, oh, this one stands out because he just happened to be bad after being good for a while. No, it's like, actually, I think it's more likely to say he's kind of just back to being bad. Like he's just not a good wrestler. He had a blip there where he was doing good. And now he's kind of just being bad again. Like, I, I don't know. It's it's weird. It's weird to to make the argument like, well, he was good for the first time in his entire career. So why would he ever be bad again? Like, I don't get that at all. Um, 
But speaking of someone who's never been bad in their entire career, Jeff Jarrett, Jay Lethal, taking on FTR with Mark Briscoe as the uh, special guest referee. Um, I absolutely loved this match. I think it like people are down on it in a way that I don't understand. Um, I don't think it's like match of the year, but also I'll argue that like I think it's crazy that there's people who say that the top two matches are match of the year on this pay-per-view. Like I don't think anything on this show is match of the year level stuff. But I just think people are more down on a lot of this card than they really should be and a little bit too high really on the two main events comparatively. Um, that said, like Mark Briscoe does not fit here at all. Like I just don't I think that he shouldn't have been stuck in here. I think the storyline that they're trying to tell with him here is fucking awkward and weird. Um, it's not what Mark is good at. I think that it really kind of hurts any of the I hate to even say it. heat, goodwill that you have with Mark right now coming off of the unfortunate passing of Jay Briscoe. And it really feels, and I, you know, this is probably fucked up to say for some people or whatever. It really feels like just shoehorning him into something because you don't know what to do with him um, after you kind of blew it by having him lose to Samoa Joe. And you know that he's over and you know that he's popular and you know that you can't just warehouse him. So you got to do something with him. But you stuck him in a place where he doesn't make sense. That said, like he didn't hurt the match. And Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett are fantastic, you know, sticky heels doing a bunch of bullshit, hoopla galore, all the people on the outside. FTR serve their role well as being the clean-cut baby faces who are just trying to, you know, do right by the man and getting fucked over by the heels. But it does kind of speak to, like, it's tough to do something like this where your babyface champions have to really kind of tone it down and be a lot more straight-laced and not really be the stars of the match. Um, that said, they did a really good job of what they're doing and the crowd gets into it somewhat, but I mean, the stars of this match are, you know, the the pack of miscreants that are like the double or the triple J. Like that's the that's the whole point of this match, and and it's weird to have your tag team champions be the afterthought, especially when you have a team like FTR, who, you know, a lot of people think are the greatest tag team in wrestling right now. A lot of people absolutely love, and they're good at doing kind of this role, but it's really not accentuating what they're best at and i think it does speak to a bigger picture that i'll talk about later which is that like it does kind of feel like the last pay-per-view cycle and this pay-per-view cycle is definitely still part of this we're in stasis mode we're not really trying to go at high octane um but quentin what did you think about this match and and kind of everything i laid out there uh definitely not as low on it as um the majority of people seem to be like i thought this was Fun enough, I like the Jarrett and Lethal and Sanjay act. Just enough as a bunch of like stu like stooging, like wanting to see them get their ass kicked heels. Um I think I just think that when you also put like a lot of focus on like the Mark Briscoe aspect of things is taking away from FTR, which again, like when they came back and everything about them, like this should be one of the hottest acts in, in the company and like they still get reaction and they still get support but it's like this they they feel like they should be doing more than this i know like, especially on a card that's like already like a little a little weaker in my opinion when like you're dealing with um like a like a four-way world title match and anarchy in arena like it feels like it would benefit from having from having a bigger um or like more palatable, big like marquee, whatever, like whatever, whatever, whatever word you want to use, uh, world tag team title match to go along with it, and it just doesn't have that. And 
I just don't know why you wouldn't want to do that. And maybe that's a timing thing. Maybe you're really adamant on like the next time FTR is in a big match, it's like them versus the Bucks, and that's going to be a big thing. Like I don't know, but even though this was solid, this was solid, and like I definitely didn't hate it the way that some people are. Some people are. I just am kind of confused by a little bit of the booking part of this, especially on a card where I think they needed more support. Yeah, I think that does speak yeah. to what I'm saying about the the down kind of whatever. But Trevor, feel free. Yeah, uh, I'm. I did not hate this match. I'm probably the low vote. It sounds like of the of three of us, but it was one of those matches where in the first half I was really. This is where I for you first really noticed that the crowd I felt was pretty dead for a lot of the show. They were not not like they didn't react at all, but and. You know, they were bad for the Cole-Jericho match. Where you say, well, that's just because this match is dog shit. But this match, I thought, deserved better than the crowd was getting. But then at the same time, I started. it started to be this thing in my head where I was like, well, is it? does it deserve better? Like, uh, I, it, I just essentially got, it distracted me until the Jarrett uh, shenanigans in the final third came in, which shockingly, or not shockingly, became like the most over part of the match where once, you know, Karen Jarrett gets involved and things like that, you know, crowd got back into this. And um, it, it's funny that to see so many people love Jeff Jarrett now doing the same exact things he did that got people to hate him when he main evented in TNA. And I think that's just a good lesson of in wrestling so often, the difference between good and bad is just where you are on the card. Because, you know, if people are, if, if you know, if this was the main event of pay-per-view against like a top wrestler, people really want to see have a great match. Like people would probably hate all the Jarrett, like classic impact, whole bunch of run-ins and uh, uh, entourage stuff. But on, on a low, you know, undercard match, it's a lot. Of, it can be a lot of fun in its place if you don't do too much of it. And like, I feel like people are really like enjoying Jarrett now doing something that they used to hate, which I think is a fascinating thing. And I enjoyed that part of it too. I think Jarrett is great being Jeff Jarrett. It's it's amazing that he's at his age and still in the physical shape that he's in. Um. I thought the point Quentin made was really interesting about uh, both of you made, but it uh, just about FTR, like should they be in a more important match? It's, it's a symptom of, again, of, uh, of one of the biggest issues of AEW, which is it so often feels like the Tony Khan is trying to make 50 people a little bit happy instead of, you know, 10 or 20 people super happy using them to their full potential. It, like everybody on this card, I guarantee you in the next six months to a year, will get a very prominent future match where on that night you'll go, man, they were used to their fullest potential. They looked great. That was a great moment. And then I also guarantee that 80% of them will then go quickly into a cold spell because it feels like in this company, they book people where you get the, a big moment and then it's almost like they think, Oh, good. Now that you've had your big moment, we don't have to give you another big moment for two or three months, and we can use that time to give some other people their big moment. And then when they're done having their big moment, it's back to you. And that can become a really frustrating thing to watch as a fan when you get it. There, we'll, and you can we'll see there's some examples on this card of people, you know, they get some momentum. You feel like they're on the verge of rising to another level. You they got, and then 
they just completely get cooled off and put in in the freezer for three months or two months. And I can tell you for an absolute fact, I know this for a fact, there are people in the, this isn't just a fan whining, there are people in AEW wrestlers who feel the exact same way. I can tell you that for a fact. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not shocking because it's just very obvious. And it's not even, you could because you could do the heights. You could do the big heights and then not, you know, have to hit those levels again. But the problem is, is that people just disappear. Like, that's the real biggest issue. It's not even necessarily that, like, oh, they don't continue on the same path. Because it's just, like, hit of something really cool and then just do... You can even just do, like, a jobber match or a promo or something to where I don't forget about you. But the, he just completely forgets about them and you don't see them for weeks. So that's why I said, like, I was happy that on the Dynamite that just aired, like, some of the you know storylines that happened in the battle royal were not forgotten and brought back up but it is kind of like okay well is he just going to cycle through and you won't see that stuff again for another like four or five weeks or whatever and, and unfortunately that's probably yeah. the case um follow this up with christian cage versus wardlow for the tnt uh title match tnt title in a ladder match um i guess quentin what did you uh what did you think about this one? Um, on it, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure why this match like bothered me. Wait, well, I don't think it's because I don't think it's a bad match at all. I think maybe it's just like the length, the length, length of it here, and what I feel like Wardlow should be doing, taking over rather than just like kind of accepting what this is for what it is and trying to find value in that. But I, I watched this and I just couldn't get into it at all. Like 17 minutes of uh, a Christian, a Christian ladder match versus a guy that like, you know, it was Wardlow, like a bigger power guy in the spotlight, in a spot like this, like creatively, like I understand like what you maybe think you could see like the best version of the, of a, of a match like this being with, Christian being crafty and Wardlow doing all like a, a bunch of cool stuff to get past the veteran wit of Christian in a spot like this. I understand it. I just didn't really resonate for me here. It didn't feel entirely comfortable. You do this and you get the big spot with Wardlow doing the swanton off the ladder to Luchasaurus, and it like looks cool and like you know like got a, got a pop there, but otherwise it just didn't do a lot for me and kind of like goes on with the point like it's funny you like you do FTR and Wardlow back to back and I'm not even saying like having a match with Christian Cage if you're Wardlow at this stage in your career is like a downswing or something you shouldn't be doing but like the way in which they did it like another gimmick match thing and one where I don't think Wardlow would like necessarily thrive in it is just another head scratcher again like not bad. I didn't dislike the match, but I think is for me, it's kind of it's hard to get super into stuff when you're just watching things and you have all these questions like ultimately, like what's the point of all of this? Yeah, I can't uh, I can't blame you for that feeling and, and having a tough time. One thing you mentioned, they're talking about time as I as I just said time um, is like when you talk about economy of time and the, and the previous match, the tag team match, they went, you know, nearly 20 minutes. And it to me, it felt like the best match where the mix of how long it went and how long it felt 
comparatively. I think that really there was almost nothing else on the show that didn't didn't do a better job of taking up that much time and then also not feeling insanely long. Um, I also forgot to mention in between the matches, there was kind of a pseudo intermission. You could kind of tell, which feels odd because there's seems really early in the show, but the rest of the matches actually do go so quick that it kind of is somewhere right in the middle of the show um, where they did some angles and stuff like that. And I don't, I, I assume neither of you guys care about talking about going back on those angles and, and talking about them. But, uh, but Trevor, I mean, if you, if you do feel free, but also, if I, don't even remember, I don't even remember, I don't even remember them right now. Sure. It was um, Ricky Starks getting jumped by bullet club gold oh, and then yeah. FTR saving his, his, his bacon or whatever and then uh and then the outcasts uh jericho and soraya <laughs> and then throwing a fireball at uh at a, a grapplers anonymous student that everyone has learned about that that basically danny garcia probably got the job it's kind of funny that danny can get like this random guy that nobody's <laughs> ever heard of but he can't get fucking kevin blackwood any a shot and it just really speaks to the quality of kevin blackwood but either way trevor what do you think about the ladder match uh, I probably liked it a little more than a lot of people I've seen online. Like, I didn't think it was great, but I thought in some ways it was kind of like a, a better version of Cole Jericho. I mean, it wasn't really the same kind of match, but it was also another kind of gimmick match where it was worked at kind of a slow pace. But it was one of those matches where, yeah, you wonder why it's booked because, you know, Wardlow isn't exactly, you know, built for the ladder matches, even though he had, you know, the highlight spot of this match. And Christian, yeah, he is kind of known for ladder matches among other things but a guy with concussion problems and so many miles on his body do you want him doing He's that fucking I thought they 50 were... like like i'm like i'm sorry <laughs> like what am i what the, what, what are we doing here i don't he... understand <laughs> yeah, yeah like i just other than the fact that oh christian used to do ladder matches i don't know like and also it, it, i guess it, going into that it's like why did both Adam Cole and Chris Jericho in this match, like Christian very barely wrestles. Like wouldn't Christian wrestling for a title be good enough for a pay-per-view? Wouldn't Adam Cole, Chris Jericho have never wrestled each other. Big stars be good enough for a pay-per-view. Like it, it was weird that they just felt like, Oh, the, every pay-per-view needs to have a few gimmick matches. And they just kind of added those on top of matches that didn't really need them. And I, I did like the way, like, I thought you can see how sm they worked this match pretty smart rather than one kind of bump where Christian gets thrown to the ladder that made me wince. Like, they, you know, Christian didn't have to do too much that was dangerous with the ladder. They say they smartly built to the big spots. You know, Luchasaurus even got involved to kind of take off physical burden. And, uh, you know, props to Wardlow for doing that spot. I kind of came away from this though, and like the next, the dynamite follow up and stuff, just wondering, like, what is the plan with Wardlow right now? Because his gimmick seems to just be he has Arn Anderson with him, kind of doing a second tier version of the Arn Anderson managing Cody Rhodes stuff. And is he supposed to be like kind of a tweener now? Because Arn Anderson's like, you know, you know, we'll do whatever it takes. And I, this might bother some people, but I feel like. Arn Anderson is kind of reaching this middle ground where, you know, time comes for us all. There's no shame in that. And eventually for most people, you will, <laughs> you live long enough. You, 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 you will, you will come to an age where you can't be the person you used to be. And like, for example, I see Jake Roberts, you know, he has, 
his voice is gravel and he doesn't have the same gravitas in his promos and things like that. He is, he is the ghost of Jake Roberts in some ways. And, you know, again, no shame in that, that will, I, I would argue I am the ghost of Trevor Dame and have been for probably five years and I'm much younger, but like, I feel like Arn Anderson right now, he's in this weird nether realm where in his promos, there's still one or two lines. Sometimes in a lot of his promos where I'm like, oh, that is the old Arn Anderson. Or there's a couple moments sometimes in these matches where he interferes where I'm like, oh, he's the old Arn Anderson, you know, kind of. And then there are other moments where he looks so old or sounds so old and he just doesn't have the same, like, gravitas as before, where it's depressing, where I feel like he's starting to get to the Jake Roberts point. He's not completely there yet, but they're still booking him as, you know, Arn Anderson, Glock Anderson, whatever, like he's going to bite a guy's thumb and it's going to bleed all over the place. He's such a badass. And I feel like, yeah, but he also kind of moved like an Octarian before that. Like, like it, it and, and in his character seems to be Wardlow's entire gimmick right now. So it's just a really weird place for that guy to be in right now. I feel like, yeah, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> It's really tough because it does feel it feels like from a bygone era and it's like I hate to even like make these comparisons because it's absolutely just insanely reddit but it's like it's like Ch Bill Murray it's like Chill Murray it's like notorious RGB it's like doing the like you know older person is kind of hip and cool in this weird way but it's just it really does feel out of time but to, I mean to use this to make this critique of Arn Anderson to say time has passed him by is just absolutely hilarious to me because for most people even our age trevor like remember that arn anderson was retired from in-ring wrestling before the monday night wars even really got into full swing right yeah. like most people who their concept of wrestling at this point starts with like that the nwo all of that like arn was already done he didn't even wrestle like he barely wrestled once that point happened, like he retired within like that time frame. Like there was the, you know, the Arn Anderson liver spot promo that was like early on in the run of the NWO that like they were making fun of him retiring. So yeah. it's kind of like he's been out of the ring for so long and he's not one of these guys who's come back because his body has been so messed up. So it is kind of ridiculous to even like point to that to say like he he's starting it. Time is starting to catch up to him. No, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like time caught up to him 20 years ago, basically. Um, But yeah, I get what you're saying about the promo thing. Um, That is kind of difficult and weird. I definitely do get like. The the ladder match thing with with Christian doesn't. I can understand saying like it doesn't make sense other than like he's got this history with it. You want to do this thing. I think that you could do a better job playing off it. They've teased at it. And I think that I'm enough of a like paid attention to the details and saw all this stuff that like I know that Wardlow clearly is a big fan of that time period, especially a big fan of the Hardys versus Christian and Edge stuff. I when I, when this match was announced, I knew exactly kind of what was going to go there with with Wardlow doing the Jeff Hardy stuff because he already does a lot of Jeff Hardy tribute-ish stuff in his matches. So this was pretty close to what I expected in that regard. And I think both of you guys kind of said it, but like my biggest takeaway, not my biggest takeaway, but one of my main takeaways in general is like the most glaring kind of booking malpractice that you can point to for Tony Khan is how he's bungled someone like Wardlow who should be a money machine, should be a money printing machine. He's large, athletic, charismatic, good looking, 
He's everything that they should want and be able to do something with. He's been over multiple times, incredibly over, and Tony has just proven over and over again that he refuses to pull the trigger and actually go with this guy in a way that makes sense. And he's honestly... The only issue that's ever happened with Wardlow is booking. It's That's been the only problem with him ever. He's always delivered the whole way through. Um, and the booking has been the only thing that's ever failed him. And it's it's really sad. Um, another Arn Anderson note that I think stood out that no one has talked about. But everyone likes to talk about Billy Gunn and how he's so big. And it stands out when you see him up against the smaller wrestlers. Um, Arn Anderson interacting with Luchasaurus. I thought was way more glaring because Arn was never a big guy. He's the enforcer. He's thick. He's rugged. He's strong. But Luchasaurus has been presented as a giant and Arn Anderson was maybe half a head shorter than him. So it was like very glaring to see that and be like, Arn Anderson was never like even presented as like a particularly large guy. He was pre presented as a, you know, a roughneck and tough and thick, but not like giant and up against like the giant of AEW or one of the giants of AEW. He was like about the same height. So it just speaks to that difference. But that said, this match, the ladder match, um, was probably my match of the night. I absolutely loved wow. this match. I thought immaculate psychology. I thought if you just paid attention to the crowd. And the way that Christian basically manipulated the emotions of the fans while doing very little, as you guys talked about, he didn't have to do a ton of big bumps. I think that that's just perfect pro wrestling. And this crowd who's been off and on, good and bad, dead and this and that, they repeatedly would get hyped up, built up. They would get to that point where they're about to break. They're going to pop. And then Christian would be the one who cuts it off. Christian would get the heat and the crowd would turn and boo. And you could see it's... It's the perfect pro wrestling because it's like it's getting all of that same emotion and all of that excitement and the crowd is at a fever pitch and they're so built up and they're ready for that big spot. And then you don't have to actually do the spot and hurt yourself because you cut it off and then you get the heat. And it's like you actually did everything that you would get from just doing the spot in almost even more milking it even bigger. And nobody actually had to even hurt themselves. I was just like, this is fucking flawless psychology. Repeatedly, Christian would set it up and everyone was starting to get so excited. And then he would be, he would cut it off and then fuck this guy. God damn it. Are we going to see anything cool over and over again? When Arn Anderson comes out and he whispers in Wardlow's ear, leading to the, he jumps off the top and fucks up the ladder. It's perfect because it plays into Arn Anderson is the coach. He's got the plans. He's setting everything up. He does the big spot. I, I cannot believe that anyone thinks that that was like an accident and that wasn't supposed to happen because I watched it and it all just made perfect sense in the context of what was going on. The Wardlow grabs the ladder, busts it off. Christian flies to the outside. Everything turns into immense chaos. You think Christian's actually hurt, but he clearly, he took like a very light, easy bump, went through the ropes, hit the floor. And then during all of that chaos is where Luchasaurus gets into the ring. And then that's when, Arn Anderson instantly grabs and bites the thumb. I'm like, how could you think that that was not planned? Because it was like the perfect setup into Arn Anderson biting the thumb. And that was clearly set up because you wouldn't have a blood capsule in your mouth to do that spot if you weren't planning on it. So the whole thing was clearly set up to, to lead to that. So all while all the chaos is going on, Arn Anderson, you know, sets it off with biting the thumb. You get the huge spot. That's the big payoff of the night that everyone's been waiting for the big spot to happen. 
Finally, Wardlow comes off with the gigantic Centon bomb. It's fucking nuts. And then, you know, you lead in from there to get to the finish. Wardlow grabs the belt. You get the big win. Wardlow comes out looking great. Like I said, Christian got tons of heat throughout the match, but never really outshined Wardlow. And Wardlow looks like a million bucks, and he's phenomenal. Like, I fucking love this match. I thought it was just, like, perfect. Like I said, flawless psychology all the way through. You listen to the crowd. The crowd is with them through every beat. Even if you think the finger biting and all that stuff was hokey, I mean, it just, to me, I, I get it. It was a bit awkward and weird, but whatever. Um, it definitely worked in the moment because, as I said, the crowd was there from beginning to end. They were following them through everything. Perfect. The execution on everything I thought was done super well. When it meant to be chaotic and look crazy, it looked chaotic and, and crazy. And, again, Christian did not have to, you know, injure himself and do anything crazy and hurt himself. But at the end of it, you didn't. You didn't feel like you got cheated. You didn't feel like, oh, they did a ladder match and they didn't take any bumps because you did still get some big bumps. And like, I just thought, again, like I said, just absolutely perfect. Um, Follow this up with kind of a bunch of hoopla. And this is where I talk about like, not only did the show definitely hurt um, for missing things, like missing matches like this. I think a really solid Jamie Hayter title match on this show would have helped a lot of people have a much more positive opinion of the show overall because Jamie's been delivering so well and she's so popular that I think that, that a big match like that would have really helped with people's like overall opinion of the show. That said, I mean, I kind of like this. And one thing that I think that nobody's really mentioned is just how much this in some ways mirrored when Hayter won the title from Tony. Because at the time, even when we did the review, I talked about that I thought it was very odd that Jamie was such a clear babyface, but the story the story did not help her and really, to me, hurt because she felt like she came across like a heel, still cheating to win um, with outside interference. And this was the opposite, where Tony is the heel, Jamie's the clear babyface, she's injured, she's coming in, and all of the outside interference helps Tony put away Jamie and like I said it just feels like kind of a perfect mirror to to show like okay Jamie went up once with a bunch of outside interference and cheating Tony's up once with a bunch of outsider interference and cheating and then hopefully we can get the rubber match and it goes clean without a bunch of bullshit on the outside but uh Trevor what did you think about I guess this angle we can say yeah um I feel like on this pay-per-view, I enjoyed it less than I would have liked on other pay-per-views because at this point, I felt like the crowd had been down for much of basically everything but the Battle Royal. And to not deliver... I mean, granted, obviously, Hater was hurt, but the fact that they still built, even knowing that weekend that she was hurt, that like, hey, you're going to see a match, and then you give a three-minute match, that's just an angle. I was like, oh, this is like the wrong show. Some pay-per-views can get away with it. I don't know about this. Now, of course, I didn't know that in a couple matches, you know, I'm sure they had the theory of we're going to give them something so big in the women's division that it will make uh, as a surprise that that will make up for this, which in some ways I think it did. What I hope uh, this is a sign of is that there's not there's going to be no more interim titles in AEW because uh, t- I, I thought it would have been funny if they had g- just given Tony an interim title here and not had a match because she's been so vocal about how she hated the interim title and I felt bad for her. It would have been like a great heel thing if she gets the title, but it's not the title she wants. But the fact that they had Hater come out and and do a three-minute match when she's probably hurting pretty bad just so that they didn't have to do interim title, 
you know, Britt Baker's come out and complain about interim titles. Obviously, people complained about the interim titles, you know, with Punk and Moxley and how that all ended up like. So I, I wonder if this is also a sign maybe that Tony's like, fine, we, you know, we won't do interim titles anymore. We'll just do however it takes. We'll, we'll put the title on other people. But yeah, I, I hope I, I my big takeaway from this was just I hope Jamie get is healthy in time for all in because she deserves to have a big moment in front of a big, you know, home country crowd. And I just, you know, even if she gets better in a month, you know, with time to spare before all. And I would say, just like put her in a glass box until that show, just to be safe, just yeah. keep her protected until then. Yeah. I have to agree with that. Quentin, what did you think about this uh, angle match situation? Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, like I've mentioned like my general I guess kind of distaste or unfavorable favorable opinion of the show. This was actually one of my favorite things on the show, even if it's disappointing, because like you know, you would rather it just be a match between Jamie and Tony and think that they can have some good chemistry and put something together. But for what they had to work with and what they had uh the ability the ability to do, like I still wound up really, really and really enjoying what we what we got here um i like the selling or not selling from uh from from J- from jamie and i like the urgency here i think the whole thing with the card honestly is like there was just a whole like lack of urgency that i felt from a lot of stuff and when we get that here in the uh in the in the tony and jamie segment with the outcast and Everyone coming out uh, from Brit and Sheeta and all, everything like they're just uh, pace and urgency that I think just nothing else on uh, on the show had. Now, granted, when you get to the four way, like the four way has a pretty consistent, like really high pace for almost twenty eight for all minutes. Like that is something that I definitely think picked up the energy uh, from the sh- from the show. But I think ultimately, like my feelings on the women's title match and my feelings on the show in general all kind of like coincide because it's like I wanted something to have more energy and enthusiasm and like urgency behind it. And it's coming at the expense of Jamie being injured and not, and that's not being sure of her status and that being part of why the match was so short, but that part of it also is why I liked it more than like the majority of stuff on the show because nothing else really gave that to me. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. And there was a ton here in a, you know, a five, six minute segment. Uh, they just did a bunch and a lot of really solid performers in it, too. So that helps um, follow this up. The AEW trios title match open house. Um, the, this house of black stuff is too fucking confusing. Like, this fucking even, sucks. This it's sucks. Convoluted, but but I mean, Quentin, yeah, go go off. T- say what you have this to say. This sucked. I don't understand why. Why just, just God damn it! I hate uh, so much about this. I don't understand the point of the fucking spooky lighting. If you want to make Alistair Black hat a uh, fucking Malachi Black happy, uh, cool. Who gives a fuck? Why? I don't understand. I don't understand the point here. Um, it's especially disappointing when we've like again, like since House of Black has come back, they've had a pretty consistent run of really good six man like six man tag matches like they're a good group of wrestlers it's Brody King Buddy Matthews and Malachi Black that yeah you might not think they're the best individually but like all together they're like really fucking fun 
well, you're sapping the, the fun out of out of this. I don't understand this. I don't. I'm not as high on the acclaimed as you are, but like they could be like serv- but they could be like serviceable or good in a spot in a spot like this if they had like a better partner to work with. And I'm not saying that Billy Gunn wasn't even like super prevalent in the match, but if they had a better partner, maybe this could have even been like way more fun than this. If, can you imagine if it was like a fucking like I don't know, just thinking of just like another New York guy? If it was like John Silver. Or some shit in this spot instead. Like it's a way better, way more, way more fun match. But like, there's no chemistry here. No one's really into it. Then you have this dumb fucking lighting thing going on, and I, I, I don't get it. They've it's like almost like they actively decided against having good matches on the show. It's like there was a concerted, a concerted effort from top to bottom. Like, what if we just don't have a good show? Because it's the same wrestlers, we've seen all the same wrestlers here be great or be good at various points, have matches of the night or highlight standout stuff at various points. And I'm not even laying like like laying the blame at the foot of the wrestlers here. It just feels like there was so much mismanagement with all of this stuff, too much gimmicky stuff, too much stuff that didn't land, and just things that you didn't have to do. On top after you have a fucking Dog shit, whatever no DQ match that you have with Colt Col- that you have with Cole and Jericho. You have the um you have the uh ladder match with Wardlow with Wardlow and Christian. You have that segment pretty much for women's title match. It goes short. You don't even get a real match there. And then you go into a fucking spooky lighting match. Like everything about this show up to this point, even if you have like varying opinions of the matches, it's like what by by the time you get here in the middle of the show, it's like, what the fuck am I watching? I don't know what I'm watching anymore. Based like the standard that they've set for their pay-per-views, I'd have to go back and look at this, but like this is one of maybe the worst stretch I can remember on like a AEW pay-per-view show in a long fucking time, if not ever, because by the time you get here, what exactly has happened? What is it what has been accomplished other than three gimmick matches and just okay, what they didn't land. I, I don't, I'm so frustrated about all of this. I mean, when the highlight of the match is either uh, Max Caster's rap or Julia Hart's outfit, it definitely does speak to the quality of the segment. But Trevor, what did you think of the uh, the trios match here? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I could follow Quentin, but um, House of Black, like, <laughs> it's so fucking... Um, you know, you talk about the WWEification of AEW. Like some parts, of it I feel like aren't. It, it, they're probably they're they seem like WWE adjacent, but it's probably not an active attempt. It's a coincidence. But something like this, it's like you take your spooky wrestlers and you give them their own matches. So whenever they wrestle, they have their own theme lighting. It's like you know what that's going to be compared to, and um. I, the light, I, when I complained about this, I was shocked the amount of pushback I get online from people like, no, it's great. Like, I, the lighting is better than like the fiend lighting. It's less obtrusive. It does look better. I appreciate the idea of trying to do something that differentiates an act from everyone else on the card. I still think it's kind of stupid. Um, the thing that's dumber though is the idea that, that these matches have a step where every match the challenger gets to pick 
a stipulation. And in theory, there's some real good potential there because especially if you have a certain <laughs> team, like a co- like team, you could have a different kind of match every time. If you have really versatile wrestlers, you could have completely different kinds of matches every title defense. That's a cool hook for, for, for an act. Instead, so far we've seen I think one team, like the best friend, said no witches at ringside. Uh, AR Fox team said uh, all tags are no tags needed. When a guy goes to the floor, someone else can step right back in, which is basically saying we don't want a stipulation because every three, six-man tag in AEW and in most companies these days breaks down to a point where tags are completely ignored and everyone just comes in whenever they feel like it. And then the gimmick to, that the, the acclaim choose for this match is we don't need a gimmick. So it's yeah. like... Why did they even put create this gift? I mean, they're not using it to any extent. And and every single match the House of Black has, like Quinn said, they're usually pretty darn good six man tags, but they're all exactly the same. So this idea that you're having this gimmick where the the, the challenging teams never seem interested in that they get to pick a stipulation, and the matches are never really different. So that's frustrating. The acclaimed are yet another act where I felt like they were really hot. I felt they were probably one of AEW's better. They stuck with them for a couple months once they got once they got hot, they immediately pushed them hard. They pushed them to the titles. They they kind of gave them like the every dynamite they were being featured in some ways. I feel like finally now they're starting even with them to cool off. I felt the way they worked the match was really weird because Anthony Bowens. I, it worked like a what felt like a 20 minute face in peril spot and then he tags out for the hot tag hot tag last it felt like very very short and then they lose which is such a not saying they claim had to win this match but that's always such a downer when you do such a long like beat down for the baby faces and then the team still loses after a very short hot tag that that feels like uh that, that's just such a dump bummer and I, my big question from this match was, I wonder if Max, Hector, when he's talking about, you know, his rap joking about um, Russell Black being in blackface, if he knew what was coming, like, did he see rehearsals or oh, something yeah. of the band for the main event? Because, I mean, that put that into even more, like, that put more of a spotlight on that when, you know, whatever you think about what they were doing, what the House of Black routinely do, I mean, you, you hadn't seen anything yet on this show, so. Yeah. Just a yeah, this is probably other than Adam Cole and Jericho, like my least favorite moment of the night, I would say. Yeah, it's it's absolutely just a difficult slog to get through. And 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 as Quentin said, I'm very high on the acclaimed, but you talked about it there, like this match just just completely misses when it comes to the acclaimed and like the point of the acclaimed, like Max rules. Max is such a good wrestler, and you get almost nothing from him here. You know, and it just almost feels like that self-fulfilled pros- prophecy thing where where people say like, oh, Max is just just does the raps and then that's that's his whole thing. And so every, like when you're in this setting, it's like, yeah, just treat him like an afterthought when it comes to his in-ring. Like, no, like Max really is a big part of the act and what made the acclaimed as over as they are. And people don't even realize how good he is as a hot tag and how good he is selling as well. And like. Bowens is very good. I'm not arguing and saying that Bowens is bad. I love the acclaim. I think they're great. But like, it just felt like you completely sacrificed the idea that Max Caster is going to do anything. You kind of built any like steam that the acclaim team had around Billy Gunn, um, who's fucking Billy Gunn. Like, you know, whatever. Um, you've got the spooky lighting. You've got all of the ridiculousness, everything that we've already talked about. Um, yeah, like 
to 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 hear you, Trevor, say that people jumped all over you about it. Like, I've been meaning to I've been meaning to work this in because I wanted to do this. I uh, a couple weeks, maybe like two weeks ago, I went to see uh, one of my neighbors perform um, at a like a a, a concert a band because up the road from me uh you know they live up the road from me and uh it was a uh, hundred gex i don't know if you guys have ever heard of them but laura lee's lives up the road from me and i went and saw them and their show had a bunch of really cool lights and and cameras and all this like awesome stuff um and uh you know this is a fucking wrestling show and i'm not going to a wrestling show to see cool visuals and lighting and and this like everything that's going on here and as you talked about it like it's just it's so fucking goofy and it's just so it really strains credulity to be like are these guys athletes like what's the fucking deal that they're putting all this together are they are they paying somebody else to do this and it is like i guess brody king is in a band that tours and stuff so maybe like he could have some connections with people that could but do i need to spend like you know five or six minutes during this match thinking about this stuff when you do have like very solid wrestlers in here who could be delivering like a really good professional wrestling match um and when you talk about just like not accentuating what you have here on this show overall like talked about the ftr match and and, and i think most of us kind of enjoyed it more than a lot of other people who've reviewed the you know the, the the title match with the triple j and and ftr but do you think that there's like any two people from this match i don't even care just pick any two of them and if you put them in a tag team match against ftr that they wouldn't have delivered like a better tag team match like i'm i, I really do believe that like you could have done ftr versus any two people in this match and gotten a much better better match than either of these two matches that were on the card um when you just talk about like are you actually trying to put together a show that that entertains and and act, like really gives people a solid wrestling match because when it comes down to it, it really does feel like this show was, again, and I compared it to the last pay-per-view, which I was lower on than a lot of people. And and that's why I feel weird where I'm like, I feel like I'm at the same level as a lot of people on the show, but just more in the middle overall on everything than most people's opinions. But I just feel like these past two pay-per-view cycles have been really down in a way that feels almost intentional. Um, either way, follow this up. TBS title... Um, Jade Cargill versus Taya. I mean, fine, whatever. Ten minutes. I'm. I've never been a fan of Taya. Never will be a fan of Taya. She's. She's been slightly better here in AEW than I've seen her in the past. Jade is just clearly unequivocally a fucking star. Everything she does is great. I think it's. I really do find anybody who has like negative opinions on Jade to just be completely out to lunch. Like I just do not see it. I don't see the weaknesses. Like, I definitely think that she's not the, the best wrestler in the world. And I definitely do think there's some stuff that she does that doesn't look like, you know, perfect. And there's definitely a, a rough kick in this match that's not right on point. But, I mean, her presence, her poise, her execution for the most part, like, she's a little bit soft. Sure. That's like the only argument I, I can even continence slightly. But people really go over the top on their hate for Jade just because of being like, a little bit soft on some of her strikes which is like i don't know how many fucking like mma guys who get into wrestling do you see who look just as weak on their strikes i mean i'm sorry but like early matt riddle stuff his strikes look just as bad as anything jade does um what was the cold steel i can't remember his name jake neal you know 
even fucking O'Neal. Tom Lawler at some point. Yeah, what was it? What was it? O'Neill. Yeah, Chuck O'Neill. Yeah, Chuck O'Neill. Like his shit always looked incredibly weak. Like there's tons of ex MMA guys who get into wrestling who their strikes just look completely dog shit. Even fucking Ronda at some points looked just as weak with her strikes as Jade does. Like to me, I'm just like really to pick Jade apart of all people to be the only one that people pick on for having weak looking strikes is just fucking. I don't know. It speaks to something, but I don't know what. That said, whatever, you know, fine match. Really feels like a letdown, and really that 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 uh, that Tony did not book the women's wrestling super strong. It seems odd that this is coming after the women's title match, the the AEW World's women's title match, whatever. Um, it just uh, to me, it feels like it like messes up the hierarchy between the titles. I don't know what the you know what that means for that, but I guess it doesn't mean anything. Chris Statlander shows up for you know a quick less than a minute title change thing. Um, the crowd was super hot for it, and I can understand why. Chris is, I think Chris is like obviously great, and have been a big fan of hers for a long time. I just really hope that we're like back to it and actually going to get something here. Um, but Quentin, what do you think about I guess this whole overall segment? Uh, yeah, uh, echoing the sentiments of never really being super in Natalia. Not sure I understood, um, the need to run this match back when it wasn't that good the first time they did it. Um, but she's not like a terrible Jade opponent. I don't think that they have like negative chemistry or anything, just not anything that goes towards like the growth of Jade or. Uh, or or an opponent that that I feel like really like helps her develop in any mean in any meaningful way. Um, again, like going to uh, the Statlander thing, fifty seconds, right? Fifty second segment um, in terms of, like the like in terms of, like the match itself or whatever, right? But genuinely, one of my favorite things on the show, and like I might be just again because it's so short, it's considered an angle. I understand that, but. Same thing as like the hater stuff. Like this has a level of like urgency and all that attached to it that other stuff on the show just doesn't have. So out of this four hour show or whatever, like my favorite, like my favorite stuff. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'll, I guess I'll like exclude Anarchy in the Arena because like I, I did I, I did enjoy that a lot. But like out of this like four hour show, like some of my favorite stuff came from like four minutes at most of like actual wrestling time because nothing else on the show like really gave me anything like that so like for how good for how that stuff was i thought it was maximized really well and with statlander like made the most of that i'm happy to see her back and uh it means a lot of things like i want to see statlander get to like really put some stuff together and then this means probably like moving jade up uh towards the uh to- towards the aw women's title so i'm curious from a booking perspective like what winds up happening but tie-in and jade was fine and then stat returning in that match last segment was one of the best things on the show to me yeah i, I actually uh oh, go ahead. go oh sorry I was just gonna say uh, I actually think uh, Jade and Ty- I like that. Y- you know, it's not it was not as good of as a match as a lot of stuff on the card, but I enjoyed it probably more than a lot of card before this, just because I think it's one of the only examples 
up to this point on the pay-per-view where a match actually exceeded my expectations, which like, I was like, Oh, I forgot what this feels like where I'm actually getting more than what I thought I was getting. And it wasn't a great match, but also the crowd was more into it than I thought. And again, that was something that was really rare up to this point on the show of like, you know, wow, I'm getting more. It's not a great match by any means, but it's more than what I thought. And I expected, granted, I expected nothing from this match because I'm not a fan of Taya Valkyrie as a wrestler. And Jade, I don't think she's a particularly great wrestler. I, I would love to see her get just more reps in places. I think she uh, obviously has a star quality, a look, a charisma, that the, 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 all the proverbial, like, you can't teach stuff. Like, just the way she carries herself, her charisma, even some of the way she moves, like, it's just superstar, obviously. And she, she gets her, you know... I I I am interested too in seeing where she goes. If she they actually felt like so much of this this streak kind of fell into a rut where they kind of ran out of things for her, ideas for her and how to prolong it. It'll be interesting if they do move her up. Like if she goes into spots that are going to require giving her more rope and more of a challenge, like you know bigger names where you're going to work more fifty fifty and longer matches and. And obviously with some more talent, maybe than Taya, not to be mean. But as far as the Chris Statlander thing, that's something I kind of don't like ending such a long running streak that you've built for so long with, with the face beating the heel after the heel is tired, even though yes, the heel threw out the challenge and it, it can set up a, a thing where Jay turns face and breaks up with Mark Sterling. Cause he was the one that issued the challenge. It, it, you know, I would have liked if, you know, Statlander got the the promise of, I mean, got the the rub of beating Jade in a match that was pre-planned and she wins straight up. But at the same time, it's another thing where I thought this was a really successful segment for the pay-per-view because this is another thing where this was a crowd that I felt like, going back to what I said about the, ma the last match, they needed to see things where it's like, oh, this is more than what I expected, more than what I was promised instead of less. And you know, you got a surprise you did not expect. You got a momentous title change to, you know, an unbeaten person streak ending. So I felt like the show kind of needed, you know, something like Statlander beating Jaden as a big surprise like that. And Tim, you wondered why they would uh, do the Tony Storm title match earlier, even though that's typically the bigger woman's title. I think it's my guess would be it's simply because that match ends on such a disappointing, oh, it's only three minutes, oh, the babyface champion loses, no. They probably felt like that can't be the last thing the women do on the card. We need to end on on in that in the, the women's division on like a happy note. And obviously this gives you the happy note. You know, you get a big surprise, a big return. Sure. I mean, I understand that in the context of like booking, but you, you my point is more like kayfabe, which I, I understand like yeah. it doesn't matter, right? Like the hierarchy of the titles doesn't end up mattering and they even talk about it a bit on the scrum where they talk about the the heavyweight title not main eventing the show but even yeah. that like kind of makes sense you know even in the context of kayfabe this to me doesn't make sense in the in the context of kayfabe other than just saying well it's because we wanted to you know do something big bigger with the women as the main thing that we do with the women or the last thing on the show that we do with the women but Either way, I mean, you know, whatever. That's a very small point, but I mean, again, that speaks to like why I why the Wardlow Christian Cage match is my favorite match on the show, right? It's like being old school and liking like 
psychology that makes sense more than I think a lot of people put that premium on things anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, whatever. It doesn't, again, like I said, doesn't matter. Um, I do think it's really tough on what you do next with Jade here, just because there is a segment of the fan base who have soured on her. So I think that moving her directly into the women's title picture, people will just be like scared that all she's going to do is win the title and do this same thing again. Um, and, and have the title for too long and, and, you know, whatever. So, or in their minds too long, whatever. But yeah, I do, I do wonder, you know, where um, we go from here. Go ahead. Oh, my speaker about boy. I'm afraid when I was about to say something. Oh, um, go ahead. But I think that's, I think that is a thing that could be true. Um, I think so. In wrestling, like there's a bunch of different ways to make a star. There's a bunch of different ways to make someone feel important and. Make some make someone feel like he like someone uh the audience pays attention to, and I think that Jade has like a lot of that stuff down already. But at some point, at some point, and I feel like this just is a thing in wrestling in the way that it is now. At some point, she needs to have a match that like is okay. Jade's been pushed since day one. She got the big debut. She was in a match involving Shaq. Um, the storyline with Brandy, the long TBS title run, like all of this stuff, the squashes that at some point, even though it's cool and she looks great dominating, that at some point there are there's always gonna be fans that just need the great match. And like not just the match where we're like, oh man, Jay looked really awesome, but like, you know, like the great match that is like i guess like universal like universal or appeals to like the sensibilities that like most people have to what a great match is now and she's talented and really good at least for like what she's been asked to do and she just has not done that yet or hasn't been forced into a position or asked to be in a put, put in a position where like that's what has to be done but I think now, with like if the TB if she's gonna move on from the TBS title, maybe get a rematch, lose again, whatever, and we'll see what her road to the women's title looks like. Like to me, and I'm not saying this in a derogatory way, but like this is like when the training wheels kind of come off. Like this is okay. We like we're building you up and protecting you, and only showing your best abilities and the best of your skill set for a while now. You have to go out there and do it. And even though I think that people do like uh, uh, hammer down on Jade a lot for sometimes really unnecessary reasons, I think that when you put a lot, like so much time and effort into building up and protecting somebody, that now after this, they have to go out there and deliver. And I'm not sure what that looks like and what their plans are for that. But like, I do get that maybe like, jumping straight to winning the title wouldn't be like the best thing for a lot of fans. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I, it did cross my mind earlier thinking about it, where it was just like in this context, like a lot of kind of uh, very similar to what you said there, which is that like you can have 
now you can have Jade matches where not only can she lose because the title's not on the line, but you know you can have her have matches that don't have the pressure of being a title match because up until this point, yes, they could have been booking her in non-title matches, right? Non-title singles matches, but they really didn't. And I do think that there is some pressure on the idea that like all of her matches are title matches that are expected to deliver, even if, even if like you know Jade matches are are quick and they're not thought of as great or whatever. Like they're framed in that context where it's a title match, and now she can have matches that are like you know house show type matches or matches that are not looked at as like oh this is a title match this is you know everyone's like paying attention to it what is like the finish is important all that stuff is important and you can do more just like growth and kind of like starting to develop something else there and i do think it would it would be it would kind of rob her development to go straight to the next title even if it does in a weird way make sense um because she does need to do some wrestling that's just just wrestling i guess i should say and not like championship wrestling so um yeah I, I agree with what you what you said there um i guess trevor do you have any other thoughts or anything else you want to add in before we no, move I, on I, I think you guys did a good really good way i would just think it as some of, of they've been for like the way to kind of solve both your points is what i would say is they've been really protected and she needs to be in put in positions where she could fail like it feels like everything's been structured among around you know the gimmick and everything like don't put her in matches that are too long don't you know all, all these things like you know don't put her with a certain opponents like you can only protect someone for so long before people really become aware that you're being protected and they start unfortunately sometimes they start to resent you for that and yeah she unfortunately i think quit saying like sink or swim like yeah she needs to be put in a position now where maybe she'll fail a couple times but you know what maybe she'll learn way more from failing a couple times in like a longer match with more higher expectations than from just being in these short matches where you're not really where you're where you keep booking her with like the sky blues and top trees of the world you know maybe it, it's time to like give her a challenge and ask more from her yeah definitely um I, I hope that didn't sound like I was <laughs> being condescending. I just, I definitely agree with what you said there. Um, I think it would be Yeah, no, no, no. You can be condescending. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I would never, never, never. Um, <laughs> okay, semi-main uh, World Heavyweight Championship match here. Um, MJF defending against his fellow pillars. Uh, Jungle Jack Perry, Sammy Guevara, Darby Allen. Um... These kind of things never speak to me, and a lot of it is the, like, self-referential, you know, kind of playing off of this stuff. Like, matches where guys are doing moves to, you know, hearken to their 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 mentors kind of things. Like, just, I don't know why that stuff just never works for me. I always think of that stuff as working for, for you, Quentin. I don't know. I think kind of just because of, like, thinking back to early on when, when a lot of times you would kind of remember the the callbacks and the references in new japan matches and things i always think like maybe you enjoy this kind of stuff but it just doesn't it doesn't speak to me um the same way it seems to for a lot of people so that's why like when people go crazy for this match it's just to me this match was a lot of work rate a lot of go 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 and a lot of filling in the story by doing callbacks it's 
I, this is a weird thing and I hate to even say it, but it's like the family guy thing. It's like just rather than telling it an actual joke, you just do a reference. It feels like a lot of wrestling has turned into that with callbacks. Like you just do like, oh, this is a reference to a, a match in the past and we do some spots and then some spots that are referencing other matches. And then that's like telling a story without like really understanding, like telling a story in the context of what's going on here. And that's unfortunately what like this match was built on. Um, that's kind of my negative takeaways here. Uh, my positive takeaway is like, I think that this really solidly solidified all four of these guys as the the main event of the company um, and the top of the, the food chain, the top of the ladder when it comes to AW. And I think that coming into it, it felt like the other three pillars were a little bit shakier, but I felt like this. Ex and I think it's odd because I did hear people kind of say like, oh, no one came out of this really better. None of the challengers came out of this better. And I think that that's unequivocally untrue. I think that you came out of this with the understanding that all three of the other pillars are now top guys. And up until this point, they've felt like maybe somewhat like play second fiddle to different people. Jack to, you know, Christian, uh, Sammy to, to Jericho and Darby to Sting, like paying, playing like little brother son to these bigger stars and coming out of this it's like no this is the top of the card these are the people like to the point where up until this point i think that darby has been thought of as like the tnt kind of champion you know he's two-time champion he's been in that in that realm and i think coming out of this you kind of go no if any of these three guys are going to challenge for a title ever again it's only going to be the heavyweight championship like the and the, the world champion like these guys are not going to be challenging for mid card or lower titles ever again like these are top of the card level talents um so i did think that that was that was good it really did solidify and and, and create that and and part of it is the the connection to max and the fact that mjf is a top guy in the in the top mix and these guys are linked to him inextricably inextricably in a way that like that's just it um absolutely loved the 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 blonde bombshell or the blonde bomber. Uh, yeah, blonde bombshell. Why did I correct myself when I was right the first time? Especially because the first time that Max did that, I called it out on Twitter where I said I wish that Excalibur wouldn't call it the awesome bomb and call it the blonde bombshell because Chris Candido is way cooler than Mike Awesome. Um, and then Taz even made sure to to correct him on the pay-per-view. So I was like, okay, I guess I was right. Um, so that was, that was fun. Um, and then as I talked about them doing the moves from their mentors or from the better wrestlers, you got, uh, you know, Darby doing the code breaker, uh, Jack doing the unprettier, uh, Darby doing the, uh, the, uh, Scorpion death drop and Max doing the Vancouver maneuver, shouting out to Nicole Matthews, one of the all time greats, obviously Max, uh, learned a lot from her. Um, but yeah, I, I, like I said, I think I'm lower on this than what I've heard from a lot of people. Um, but just you know, this kind of match just doesn't speak to me. But Quentin, like, like I said, like, I feel like these kind of things speak to you, but I think that you're not very high on this match. I think I'm wrong. I think I need to like recalibrate how I think of your opinions on stuff. What did you think of this? I mean, it, I thought it was good. Yeah. But like, I didn't, I didn't really leave it much more other than that. Um, I like the pace of it. I thought that for a four way match, if there was a real, there was a really good pace, um, that went along with it. And I think that as a vehicle to get Sammy, Jack, and Darby to like solidify feeling like main eventer status, or at least as an attempt to do it, I thought was a really good attempt. And it's really, really selling like how 
much of an uphill fight for Max that this was. When you see like how exhausted and worn out uh, he is by the end of all this, because everyone had just been like so amazing and had all these like really big standout moments, and like kind of deliberately, like Max didn't have any. Max did. Max was a chicken shit heel in a weird, impossible position, and eked his, and eked his way out of it. And all the shine went to those guys, which is like how ideally a match like that should be laid out. So, like from those perspectives, I thought that the match was successful. But watching it now, like I thought, I thought, I thought it was good. I thought, I thought there's things to like about it. And like I said, I think the pace and how hard they went for 28 minutes is like really, really impressive. But no, I'm not. I wasn't like super moved by this. I thought it was good, and on a bad show, it's one of the better things on the show, but not something that like I'm like eager to like revisit or rewatch or something I think of like in a pantheon of great multi-man matches. I thought I thought it was good. Yeah. I thought and, this and... was like the oh go on. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say I thought this was like the uh like the greatest version of a Ring of Honor scramble from the old days where, yeah, it's just a ton of moves, guys going on mile a minute, lots of ideas. And at times it feels too cute and too choreographed. But I also felt like this was a match kind of match the show needed because on a lot of other AEW pay-per-views this match, you'd say, Oh, that was good. But there's already been three matches like this on the show. Like I'm getting a little fatigued by this on this show. I don't feel like the guys had done this kind of match yet where those really prime era athletes just shooting for the moon going just move 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 you know i that's not always my fate absolute favorite kind of match but i do enjoy it when it's done well and the show hadn't had one of those yet uh i i again i i thought i was one of those people that thought doing every we're all gonna do our mentors moves back to back to back to back i mean it's it's cute but it's also kind of yeah, but doing it all back to back, it's a little too takes me out of it for a second. It's a, but you know, I, I'm the kind of fan that like I agree with you, Tim. Like the Blom bombshell is a way better callback for me because it's it and touched the past because it's more subtle. You know, like people dug up after the show, like MJF had a had a tweet a couple of years ago of him reading a Candido biography and putting it over. So like that's the kind of thing that's more of a deep cut. I appreciate that more, but I get why most fans would appreciate much more obvious. We're each going to do in succession the moves, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this, and I I thought these. I, I also disagree though. I don't think that this match is going to break these guys out i think it's a good feather in all their caps but i it, and that just goes back to feel like these guys could any one of these guys could end up in the middle of the card again tomorrow and especially jungle boy here i felt like i felt kind of bad for him where everyone else got something special for their entrance you know mgf got his own triple h aping entrance darby got one of his mini movies sammy got to announce he's going to become a father Jungle Boy doesn't really get anything. Jungle Boy gets the belt near the end of the match to do the belt shot. You know, everyone, you know, it, it's it's always it's never a great sign when fans want you to turn heel just because they want you to change. They're getting kind of sick of you. They want you to do something and they boo when you do the right thing. Like he's I, I kind of I feel like he's in a position in his career right now where he just needs he desperately needs something, anything. And but I like the match. Yeah, I uh yeah, I, I 
I maybe I disagree slightly with both of you guys just because I think that you know the present maybe it's just the presentation and I could definitely see not necessarily thinking that it's a hundred percent there, but just feeling like at least the way that they're going to be presented in the context of the company is that they're top of the line, especially because in this setting, as Quentin mentioned there, like all like all three of the challengers really felt like they were the kind of the shining, you know, exemplary top of the line wrestlers. And Max just kind of got saved by the skin of his teeth and really took advantage of the situation in a way where, uh, where if any three of them were challenging him just directly one-on-one, they could have beat him is kind of how it put it, it it's, was going. But I guess that's been kind of the crux of Max's whole thing, especially since he's won the title. So who knows? Um, one thing I think that was like interesting is like the the headlock takeover thing in Darby has just really like caught the caught the you know the the everyone's like cultural has really hit the cultural zeitgeist in a way comparatively because they tried to do like a callback to how Max beat all three of these guys on on Dynamite a couple weeks back um, and people didn't understand any of it or remember the concept of any of it and except for the Darby and the headlock takeover. Which I thought was very interesting um, that like that's the only one that people really think about or remember. And it was also a big part of specifically they really leaned into it here on this match and continued to build up the kind of the 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 the, the legend of the headlock takeover when it comes to Darby and and MJF. Um, so this is as good a place as any to to break down. OK, which pillar is which pillar from all Japan? Quentin, uh, who do you no. think is MJF? <laughs> no, MJF clearly is um, main event time. Uh, uh, wait, before you do that, I, 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 kind of a, I have a question now. Um, so, like, what exactly is the problem with MJF's title reign? Do you okay. think that? Like, 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 there's this has been a moment that they've been building to for the like since the inception of the company, right? Like, right. this is supposed to be like a big deal, something that feels important. And like during this time, which I'm not going to call it a doldrum for AEW, but a time in which they're trying to like figure themselves out creatively, you would hope that this guy that you've like put so much effort and stock in, so many big moments and stories surrounding him, even down to like the uh, work shoot walkout and everything, like. There's been so much here, and you get to this moment, and it's like falling really, really. I think he said falling really flat. I will guess. Hopefully, we'll get Quentin back here in a moment. But Trevor, um, but how about you open it up? What's wrong with MJF's title ring? Aren't clicking, and I'm wondering uh-huh. what you guys think exactly is the problem here. Uh, I, I think um, there's a couple of things. One, I think, I mean, you know, he, well, Jeff has this theory of, you know, don't wrestle much. Sometimes don't even do that much in terms of segments, you know, to make himself feel special and everything he does feel like more of an event. But I feel, and you know, that can definitely work for him sometimes, but I feel like it cuts in the other way where when you do so little, and then you do something that bombs isn't going your way it feels even worse because you know if you're a wrestler you know if you're orange cassie and you're working most weeks and you had a, like a bad match or something well the next week you can just do another good match and fix it and and everyone you know wipe the taste out of everyone's mouths immediately where mjf is so 
angle and feud dependent and so promo dependent that when you have one feud like this that's just really not good boy does it linger and you know you, you don't you don't you're not quickly chasing the mistakes away and then in addition yeah this feud i just I don't know why they went so wrong with it. Like the things they went with where you could say on one hand, all right, there's an understandable problem, which is they let three guys who aren't known for their promos all have a lot of promo time. You, you know, that's a, that's a mistake. You could say that's a mistake, but it's also, Hey, it's, a, it's going back to the J thing. You gotta let these guys sink or swim eventually at their weaknesses. And so you can at least understand that. And they did, different varying levels but the thing that i think is not forgivable or understandable is just the idea of they built this idea of oh it's going to be a four-way except it not it's not it's going to be a single elimination tournament for one opponent and then okay we have a winner but now we're going to change it again to a tag match and i think that was a really wwe feeling like not interesting and yet kind of hokey weird way of getting to this match and then on top of that just not just the promos but the tone of so much so much of the stuff was again going back to the wd wwe stuff it, it was that very much instead of wrestlers really like really fighting over hatred and you know it was a lot of this is going to be so important for me. I deserve this. You have don't deserve this. I deserve this. This is what I've always deserved. Like a lot of a lot of the scene was just wrestlers saying, "This is finally. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get what I deserve." In like a real like, I'm owed kind of way that did not again wasn't wasn't relatable, and it was bad because in the last few weeks they were really selling. Oh, but we're, we're this is going to be our first pay per view main event. And then they didn't even get the pay-per-view main event, which again, like I, I, I just, it's fascinating that so many turns, like the wrongheadedness of so many of the things they made in this feud. And you could tell that the reaction is getting to MJF because in the post-show uh, presser, he's always in character, but in the character, he did go on this spiel about how fans are so fickle and they love you and then they don't love you. And I have to think a lot of that's aimed from the reaction to this is probably the like the worst, the poorest received thing he's ever done in the company. And I imagine that's probably gotten to him a little bit. I, as we're talking there, I think the main thing and the thing that stands out to me the most, and it's just, it's MJF, because I think it's very easy for what you said there to be like, well, you've got these other three guys who are not strong promos and they were given too much promo time. And I think a lot of people look at it that way. But I think because when you talk about the MJF title reign is failing, it's not just this. The build to the Danielson Iron Man match was also bad, was also shaky, and people were not into it. And I talked about it then when we reviewed that pay-per-view that I felt like, you know, it feels like Tony is doing like this cycling down thing and he's not like really focusing on building the best pay-per-view he can. And I, I, at that time I talked about it, like he's making the main event be an hour long match with Brian Danielson. So he doesn't have to think about a big chunk of the show and really save a ton of matches and save a ton of wrestlers that he can use later to draw on stuff that he thinks is more important. And it felt similar here, but like in the opposite end where he just has a ton of people because a lot of these matches are way bigger and more multi-man than they needed to be um, in a way where it just felt like you just threw a bunch of people in matches so that you're saving like singles matches for later when you feel like they're more important. And it's the same thing. 
But I feel like all of that pales in comparison to when it really comes down to it is that MJF, and this is kind of the story and the, the psychology and the dynamic that Quentin, I really felt like brought to the forefront when talking about like the, the Zack Sabre Jr. heel run um, in America of the like, the guy who, you know, thinks he's, is really playing this character of better than he is. And like MJF really is kind of in a weird way, like doing the same thing, but I don't think it's intentional where he's just shaky and the builds are coming across like really sweaty and he's just looking for a handhold and he's grabbing something that feels firm and he's never quite getting there. And a lot of like the issues with the Danielson build was that where like from week to week, his character just did not make sense because he would change repeatedly and that happened to kind of again here where the way that uh, trevor you talked about the way that the story just felt like it was constantly moving but not in a way that narratively made sense but just in a way that felt like you're like look you're just nakedly groping in the dark for something that works not in a way that like feels like you know what you're doing and you're just like going on this narrative from point a to point b but more in a way like come on somebody something catch someone like this everyone just like get into this and enjoy something that I'm doing. And that's been kind of the entire MJF title reign, even down to the scrum. When you talk about the scrum, like the, what you mentioned there, sure. That's like a, definitely a part of it talking about the fickle fans, but that's almost feels like more on the surface. Whereas like the, 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 the a little bit more subtle thing that I pick up on is every person during the scrum, like he says, only, you know, 5% of our fans are on Twitter, whatever, 7, 5, whatever he said, percent of our fans are on Twitter and social media is poison and this and that. And then every person that he called on for a question when they said, I'm from XYZ podcast, I'm from XYZ website. He said, I know who you are. I know <laughs> your website. I know you. He even knew like Zenny, who I only know because she's like Laura Loomer of wrestling Twitter. Like, that's my only touchstone. Who, but he's like, I know you. And that's the thing. It's like, he's talking about how nobody's actually online. And all of the people on there are just internet dorks and dweebs. And social media is poison. But the second that you say your name, he's like, yeah, I know who you are. Because I'm just as online as all of you. I And yeah, we all know, like, yes. Go I was ahead. just going to say, he's very CM Punk in that yes. he is very aware of, of how he is seen, Everything. what people are saying about him. Like, some wrestlers generally don't get, care, and there are some wrestlers that even if it drives them crazy, they really care. Yes, and MJF, we all, I think everyone on this call knows just how online MJF is, right? And like, yeah, but the fact that he's trying to say... I'm taking a break from social media because it's poison. And actually, nobody's really online. And that's why I say he's sweaty and he's just, please pay attention to me. Please like me. And that's the part that doesn't work because it just, he will never, he needs to let that part of himself break through and and be, show that weakness in his actual character because it's just, he can't cover it. He really cannot cover that up. And he's constantly looking for approval and he's constantly trying to make things work and it just it loses like the it loses that air of like legitimacy because nothing sticks from week to week because the second that it gets any negative reviews he's trying to pivot and fix it and that's why i think that the title reign is not working and it's why someone like moxley is such a great champion because i know that moxley is not on the internet because 
the people who have gotten like one or two actual online messages from Moxley have bragged about it so much to where you know like <laughs> this guy has sent like three DMs and four emails his entire life. You know what I mean? Like yeah. yeah, like this guy is not online and he just does his thing and he does it and that's it. And MJF unfortunately is just too like he's too unassured and he's always looking for approval and it's I think that's why it's not working. And I mean, he's also in his mid, like he grew up in this. So like, unlike some of these other guys with an old, older school mentality, I think like, this is the world he knows, you know, it's almost like they're older, but guys like the young bucks or something like this is the, the, the world they grew up in. So it's kind of like, even if there's parts of them that really resent it, I, it almost feels like they're probably, maybe they feel like, well, there's nothing else, but yeah. this ecosystem, yeah. you know, where a guy like Moxley, he's probably, you know, could care less if like someone doesn't like him or is reporting something that's fake or whatever, you know, like he, he's just going to go hang out with his gorgeous wife and his kid and drink his weird non-alcoholic beer that probably doesn't taste good, but kudos for him and his sobriety. So like, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it's just different. And I feel like there, there are more wrestlers every year that are more like, that are less like John Mossy, just because again, it's, it's the world we're all being raised in now for better or worse and often worse. Sure. Sure, but I mean, you talk about it, but it's not an age thing because you look at someone like CM Punk, and I mean, CM Punk is the original online boy. I mean, when it comes to <laughs> wrestling, like he's a live journal. Like, really think about that. CM Punk is a live journal guy. Quentin, I think, <laughs> wasn't even alive before live journal was already dead. Oh god! Like you know, like I mean, yeah, it's it's you have to keep in, that in mind. Like like it's not just about age because we still have people yeah. that are that are older that are still just as much on it but yeah but there's also younger guys who aren't like there's tons of younger guys because i there's like young wrestlers who i like who i try to get in contact with and it's like impossible they're just not online you know there's just not it it still exists even for younger guys too so it's definitely a, a weird trade-off and you can definitely see the difference when it comes to it the internet is poison trevor the internet yeah is well, well even tony khan is a guy who literally will like run to cage match after every show to see what people thought like sure. that means a fair bit to him and yeah you would it, it, it's you would think you know someone shouldn't care that much about a, a metric like that but yeah a lot of people do yeah well hey you know what quentin i feel like you're getting away easy on this why don't you tell us why the mj of title reign is failing seeing as you asked the question I mean, I gotta just agree with everything that you guys are saying. I think that um, I don't know that there is, it's been too much of trying to be a lot of different things, I think, from MJF. Uh, and that goes back to the Daniel to the Danielson program and traces all the way through here. I feel like he's tried to be a lot of different things. He's tried to be like the voice of the fans in some ways, like especially like during here when he was like talking about talking to the um, the other guys and said so, like pretty much like gave almost like honest like fan perspectives of how those guys are viewed and i'm like okay like this feels weird because again like mjf gets to he walks a weird middle ground where on some level in the absence of like punk or you know, Moxley going, you know, go, going heel and things like that, is that MJF, when, when he's not in full uh, heel shtick mode, 
feels like the voice of the fan sometimes or feels like the voice of like a certain type of fan and it's a weird space for your chicken shit heel rich boy champion to occupy so it's a thing where I think his character is caught in two worlds uh, I think purposefully as well which is kind of the problem here because I think you like they notice how popular MJF is, how beloved MJF is, the ratings, the, the segment ratings that he does, and everything like that. And it's like enticing to want to put him on some type of weird gray area, even if like it's leaning to leaning to uh, more towards one color than the other. But I feel like personally that they've like fried MJF as too many different things and that's part of like a lot of the confusion or iffiness on it for me because I'll come to them like to an MJF match and like still wind up enjoying it more than other people. Like I actually really like the MJF and Danielson match. I think the match itself is great. The build in which we got there is just not engaging at all. The build in which we got here is just not engaging at all. And like on some level, like when you're Bread and butter and what you're most renowned for is being able to talk people into the building and these segments and all this great stuff. Like he, for whatever reason, just hasn't been delivering. And that maybe is like what he's been given to work with, the situation that he's been put in. Like what exactly is the story that you are gonna that you plan on telling with Brian Danielson and figuring out ways in order to make that unique. The story here is trying to pretty much carry four guys who can't talk into an interesting main event. That's a lot to ask for. So maybe with a different opponent, if he moved on to a Hangman or a Kenny Omega or whoever, and that was his next big title program, then maybe things are different. So maybe down the line, if we have this conversation in September, that we have a different tone. We're talking about MJF, if he's still champion by then. But I just feel like they've tried... To, they've almost like overly relied on to too much on MJF in some of these situations to like carry what makes a program interesting. And I think he's definitely shown that like, hey, he needs he needs some help. He can't do it by himself. He needs some help. He need and like again, not that by any means Brian Danielson's a bad talker. It's just the way they set that up just wasn't really ideal. And you went with three non-talkers here for a semi-main event of a pay-per-view. That is a lot to ask for. I think what it really comes down to, Quentin, and I have to, I'm sorry, but you set me up. I have to hit my catchphrase when it comes to MJF. Like, the real answer always comes back to the thing. And I find it fucking crazy because I, and I don't even want to do this. Like, I still hear people who t- try to pretend like they were paying attention to early MJF back in the day be like, oh, we didn't know that he could be a great wrestler. MJF has always been overrated promo underrated worker and it continues to be his fucking blight even now and you just you really just hit the nail on the head quentin when you said it like they think that he can carry promos and segments to make it so that three guys who can barely talk are passable to build and create this great story and he can't and he repeatedly shows that he can't And then when he gets in the ring, the matches are much better than the builds. And it just goes back to what I've said from the fucking beginning. And this is 
back to CZW. Like I've been saying this about Max Max since Create a Pro. You know, like we've been watching this guy from the beginning, and I've said it from the beginning. People give him way too much credit as a promo and not enough credit as a worker. And it continues to be his biggest problem. Like it it I, I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to hit the catchphrase, but Quentin, you forced the hand. Um <laughs> main event, anarchy in the arena. Blackpool Comic Club. You talked about it. You said it there, Quentin. Who would be good challengers for MJF? Well, you know, Kenny Omega, Adam Page. Okay, well, in the main event, they lost. This is why it feels like even like as we're talking about like the the overall picture in AEW and what's going on, like this main event feels like it's not, it's really like separate from the main storylines. And that's why I feel like for me, even coming into this or even coming into the match, my appreciation of the match, everything that's going on, like it's tough for me to love this as much as a lot of people. Like on top of the fact that just the last year's anarchy in the arena was better, um, just because it felt like it had more drama, it was more chaotic, it was more wild, it was more spur of the moment. On top of that, this feels so separated from everything else. It feels so like it's just not part of the main storyline of the company. It just it makes me less invested. I like it, but it just feels like violence for violence sake. And it doesn't really feel like it makes a huge like impact on the the goings on of the rest of the company. And you also come out of it and you don't really see like Blackpool Combat Club win. Do you really see any of them getting a title shot coming out next? I think the biggest thing coming out of this is feeling like elevating Yuta. And that's the biggest thing that they follow up with on Dynamite after this is that Yuta continues to get another big win. Um in the in the tag or the trios match so like really this just feels like this is just violence for violence sake and it's a big spectacle to close out a pay-per-view but it's not necessarily like anything important that said like of course it's executed super well there's tons of color there's violence there's grotesqueness i love the poker chip i love the callback to the poker chip and then also having the barbed wire and the glass on it um I like broken glass and bottles like that on the thing just from my old backyard wrestling days because I always really enjoyed using the broken glass like that because it looks cool, but it, you don't even feel it. It's like it's the perfect wrestling thing. Like it gets over and it looks like it crazy, but it really does nothing to you. So I, I love that. And again, like everything else about this, I really enjoy. I love Canadian uh, Captain America getting stopped by the Swiss <laughs> Superman. I thought that was just a neat little thing, like tons of fun. But um yeah, Trevor, what do you uh, what do you think about this Anarchy of the Arena main event match here? This was my favorite match on the show. I thought it was great. I think I probably like the the first one better, like you. But probably was wondering. I wonder if I like it better just because this match felt you know like a sequel. It felt like it was just here's a lot. It you know it wasn't completely the same, but it was like here's a lot of what you expect from the first one that you saw in the first one, but more of it with some different people, you know, right down to, Hey, remember last time that moment where you liked that wild play wild thing played for a while while we fought, how about we get a band to do it longer this time? Like, you know, it was, it was, that was kind of like in some ways summed up the match. It was like, Hey, here's some, a lot more of what you like. And so in that sense, the first time you discover something, you kind of don't know what to expect. That's always going to be more special. But I thought this was great. I, I was really entertaining. I did think it would have been hilarious if knowing how badly uh, AEW's last experiment with explosions went, if like Matt Jackson had hobbled to the ring with that explosive on his shoe, he just set it, he put his foot down a little too hard on his way down and it just explodes before he gets to the ring. I thought that would have been funny, but... <laughs> 
It, it, it did not. We did not get that. But um, no, I I thought it was. Uh, it, it's hard to you know so much happened, but it's kind of one of those matches that's hard to review in the sense of it's just like, well, did you like the first one? You'll probably like this one a similar amount, or maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less. You know, Takeshita being the big surprise. It was. It was crazy where, you know, the Double or Nothing crowd, you know, they gave it a bit of a pop, but not a huge reaction. And then, of course, on Dynamite, they go absolutely apeshit for the idea that he turned on them. And you, you talk about where they're going with these teams. It feels like if that's, if anything, the, the biggest thing from this is just the idea of he, him versus Omega probably, you know, is going to... I would imagine that maybe they do Yuta Omega, like, on TV, and then maybe Takeshi to Omega's a bigger match down the line. Or maybe they do a big tag since they're hinting that Omega's going to get friends from Japan. And that's the other thing is, like, this feud doesn't feel over. And looking at, you know, Blood and Guts, they typically do that around this time the last two years. They did, I think, in 2021 it was in May, and in 2022 it was in June. Part of me wonders, like, even though they just did a crazy gimmick match here, do they try and get one more gimmick match out of this? Because you could conceivably do a Blood and Guts with these two teams and have that be the bluff where the faces get their revenge. So I, in some ways I'm more interested with all of that. One thing that's interesting is because people, people are like playing off of Kenny. Cause there's a post-match thing where Kenny says he's got like two more friends from outside of the company to come in. Right. And people are like thinking like that's two more wrestlers, which does make sense because of the context. But when you think about it, that he needs two more friends to counter soup Takeshita and uh, and Callis, they don't necessarily need to be two more wrestlers, right? It could be someone to to counter Callis, would which would be a non wrestler. So you could two definitely more do barbed a five wire on five. Brooms. Yeah, right. But no, <laughs> but like it could be a it could be a five on five, and it means that he's going to bring in like you know a wrestler and a manager type person coming in. So it I think it's weird because a lot of people are like, oh, obviously he means Abushi and Okada, and it's like. I don't think that's what he means. I think he might mean like Okada and then I don't know, like whoever could be like a manager type. Yeah, I, I, I would think at least one of these people is a bushi. Like, you know, right. like if there's one person that comes in, that would be the one that makes the most sense to me. So right. I, would, I could see yeah. it being like a and like uh, Nakazawa or something. You know what I mean? Like someone who's like a manager or something like that. Like, right. Cause like, cause ever since, um, well, I guess since that uh, Claudio and Mox versus Nakazawa Cutler tag, have Cutler and Nak been on TV? Like, I haven't been like no. I haven't really noticed. No. Yeah. No. No. Okay. So, yeah. Then that, that could easily be like Nakazawa and Abushi. Right. Or it could, I mean, it could be someone else too. But like, again, I just I think it's weird. I think that it's going to be like Abushi and a manager. I don't know who, but someone, someone else to to counterbalance the callus. Is what I think it's going to be. So we'll see where they go. I mean, I mean, when you think about it being callous, it could be someone from his past. Either way, that's not really the point. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like we like I steamrolled over Trevor because you were talking. Continue. Oh, no, I, I was I was done basically. I mean, it, it was a uh, it was a good main event. I, I I enjoyed it a lot, and I you know I know you disagree you know with thinking that the latter match was the best and you're probably not as high as the final two matches as a lot of people but i am in that way kind of with the boring consensus that this was kind of a meh at best pay-per-view that 
the two main events thankfully really delivered. You know, they certainly delivered, I think, on what people probably were hoping or expecting from those matches. I don't think people can leave those matches and say they didn't get what they probably were sold that they were going to get. Well, okay, so this is my opinion, is that I'm probably still, this is a meh pay-per-view, and I'm just Mm. higher on the rest of the card and lower on the two main events, but still end up in the same place. Is kind yeah. of where I think I am. If that well, makes it depends. It, it depends, right? Like, what I feel like with pay per views, especially in today's day and age, really how you review shows like this, it depends on like how much is your time and your money worth to you. Like, if if you're a person that doesn't have a lot to do and you don't watch that much wrestling and you pirated a stream for this. I would say it's a pretty good show. You to get two matches sure. at the end, and the matches on the undercard. You know, even if they're disappointing, they weren't necessarily. A lot of them weren't terrible. Like they weren't all Cole and Jericho. But like you know, if you consider that AEW is not a company that runs pay per views every month, they generally set a very high bar. This is not a like a ten dollar thing. You're paying I don't know what sixty dollars these days, yeah. at least. You know, depending on your provider or, or the format. I mean, with all the online formats, I don't know how much everyone pays for them, but. Yeah, then at this point, I could see the show going all the way down to this was outright bad, depending on what you're, you know, I, I think with pay-per-views, you really have to factor all of that in, you know, when people are like, oh, why are you complaining there was two matches that good? Yeah, but you're spending a lot of money and a lot of time on this. Yeah, and I, this is the first pay-per-view in a long time for AEW that I didn't watch live and I didn't actually pay for, so... I, I, again, I don't think that's part of it because I'm still not super high on the show and I feel like I'm pretty good at like separating myself from that side yeah. of things. But but coming out of it, that is definitely something to say. I think maybe watching it live would make a difference, but I did a pretty good job of not being spoiled. I think coming into this, the only thing that I was spoiled on was um, Statlander winning the title, like which was kind of lucky in that regard and everything else I, I watched pretty much unspoiled live i just watched it at the regular speed i you know did the whole normal like thing it's like just the next day and again like i said my takeaway and i think you can get caught up in it that's why i said it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy i think a lot of people were down on this show going into it and their opinion was like this is not going to be good and they really didn't like a lot of it and then by the end of it they couldn't help themselves and they got into the two main events and I just think like a lot of the stuff on the undercard was much better than people gave it credit for. And then the two main events were not as good as people give it credit for, but that's also my taste. Yeah. And the main event I thought was very good and it was it was a, a great spectacle, but it was not to me, again, it paled in comparison to the last anarchy in the arena. And I thought that the payoff was solid. Um, but I don't I was not necessarily over the moon for it, you know. So that was kind of my takeaway. Where, like I said, at the end of the day, I think I'm like pretty similar in opinion to the overall quality of the pay-per-view, but just, yeah. I think, yeah. distributed differently. Uh, yeah, sorry. absolutely. I, I agree. I, I just, I, I completely agree. Like, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I mean, again, not a, not a bad show, but that's the thing that I think is crazy is people who are acting like this is like, oh my God, this is dire, or, you know, call in the... The Colin save the saviors like this is it start like waving the white flag AEW's cooked and I'm just like no like this is why I say I feel like they've been down but I feel like Tony is really intentionally trying to peak over the summer but Quentin I was going to ask because some... oh sorry go no go go 
What, what were you going to say? I was going to ask. I was just going to ask because you brought that up a few times. Like that's the theory people have is that, and it seems like you believe. I'm not sure if I believe that or not, but the idea that you know you consider that if the rumors are true that All Out's going to come out like a week or two after All In, and you've got Forbidden Door two. That's three pay per views in like a couple months span two or three months span plus collision, which presumably a, a big new show. You're going to want to give a couple pay-per-view quality matches for that to kind of prop it up at first. Like there is a theory. A lot of people are saying that if you look at a show like this, they didn't really give away much, you know, like, yeah, yeah. they, you know, it's a big gimmick match in the main event, but you know, they didn't do a singles world title match. They didn't do that many singles matches period. Yeah. Like there is a theory that people are saying that, Oh, they, they're intentionally, downshifting things just so that they have more cards to play for the next few months. And again, yeah, I, I, I have no that, idea if that's how they feel or not. Yeah. I think that it it is like the thing that people are pointing to. Why are there so many gimmicks on the show? And I just feel like it's, yeah, I, I, I think the gimmicks are intentionally covering up for a lack of like, you know, substance. So what they really did, what, you know, Tony really did here was book a show with a ton of gimmicks, a ton of multi-mans, a ton of multi-person, I should say, uh, you know, surprises, all of this stuff to, to cover up for not really booking a substantive card because he's saving a ton of the substance for, as you said, three big pay-per-views in the span of like two months and a new TV show. I, I am not, I, I'm not even saying that that's like bad or stupid or whatever. I mean, that's just normal wrestling booking. And like, I don't necessarily even think that like, you compare it to the last pay-per-view and you can't even say like, oh, it's like he's clearly like going into like, you know, easy mode or whatever. Because when you compare it to the last pay-per-view, it's a very different version of the same kind of idea where I talked about that the the main event was an hour where clearly like the idea is you cover up for not booking a ton of other matches by having a big chunk of your pay-per-view covered up with one match, right? And then have a couple other matches yeah. underneath sprinkled in so it's like it's it's really different concepts but the same idea where you're not giving away a ton yeah absolutely uh, for what it's worth i just went and um so i was curious and i was looking at what are the lowest aw pay-per-view ratings um on on, on cage match and you know aw is like a, a bigger one so a, a bigger more more high profile company so like there is a pretty good amount of votes that have came in in the last week to like give a pretty good idea on how people on how people are feeling. And as far as pay per views, this is the second worst rating that AEW has had in terms of like from from the, from the uh, inmates on cage match. Uh, the right now double or nothing. It, well, twenty twenty three double or nothing is, is sitting at six point five eight. And the lowest that is there is 5.84, and that was all out 2020. Uh, that is big. That, that's uh, Britt Baker versus Big Swole, uh, the Bucks versus Jurassic Express, the Battle Royal. There was a uh, Guevara versus Matt Hardy, Cheetah versus Thunder Rosa, uh, Dark, or Dark Order versus uh. Versus Natural Nightmares, Macardona, uh, and Scorpio Sky, uh, Adam Page and Kenny versus FTR, uh, and uh, Moxie versus MJF, and uh, Mimosa Mayhem, uh, Jericho Cassidy. So, like, for reference, like, that's like 
uh, that's like the worst rating, but that's also like a pandemic, but that's also like a heart of the pandemic card. So yeah. like, how much do you really want to bang, bang, bang on them for that? So like, there's Revolution 2021, uh, which is at a 6.89. That's uh, the Bucks versus Inner Circle of Jericho and MJF. There is a tag team battle royal match on here. There's Sheeta versus uh, Ryu Mizunami. There's Sabian and Miro versus Chuck Taylor and Orange Cassidy. Adam Page versus Matt Hardy. Uh, there was Scorpio Sky versus Ethan Page. Uh, Lance Archer, Max Caster, and uh, Penta El Saramiero. Uh, there was this was the Darby and Sting versus the, uh, uh, Brian Cage and Ricky Star and Ricky Starks. And there's Omega versus Moxley exploding barbed wire death match. So oh, yeah. that's kind of where this is falling into here. Where I guess if we're giving like non-pandemic era competition, like this is the worst AEW pay-per-view that like wasn't in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, I don't know, Trevor. <laughs> do you agree? Because I think some of those, like, <laughs> especially the, the the that one with Moxley and Omega barbed wire match, I think that that match just tanked a lot of opin- people's opinion on the overall card. Unfortunately, I think. But yeah, I, I think this one stings some people more because AEW on a really good run, yeah. so the expectations sure. are higher probably than they've ever been, and. The- you look at some of the ticket sales. I mean, the ratings for for at least for Dynamite are fine, like against heavy competition and stuff. But you look at you know the big summer coming up and stuff. I think one of the reasons why people were disappointed with this pay per view is the TV for the whole last cycle has been some of the weakest TV they've done in a while. And so there was this thought of like, you know, like you know Santa's going to make up for the bad year I've had. You know, the the, the pay per views have been so good that the pay per view will kind of reset things. It will redeem the bad TV and the fact that a lot of this pay per view was pretty weak too. I think that that just accentuates how bad it was in a sense. Like I, I don't think that's wrong to feel that way. You know, well, this is a time where I felt they really needed a home run and they didn't come close to a home run even. And I'm like, where I overall, even if if I come to that, that final evaluation for different reasons, I do think the pay per view is just eh, it's, it's okay. It's not a bad pay per view because of for me the last two matches, but. This was a time when you, if there was ever a time in the last year or two where they really needed better than a meh, it's the one time they deliver a meh. So that really stings. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible timing. But again, it's like, is it is it really meant to be a lull intentionally to, to deliver a bigger peak? You would think not because it's a business or whatever. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know. It just, it really looks yeah. like you got a big couple of shows coming up in a, in a little bit here you've got punk coming back and he wants to be the savior like how much is, of all of that like could yeah. maybe be influencing i don't know but either way i don't i don't know i don't know what to do next you know i want to keep talking to you guys forever i want to never leave <laughs> um but i feel like we have to so um have any final thoughts on the the pay per view? Do you want to talk about business? How many buys do you think this is going to do? Is that's always fun? People like to hear about that. Uh, <laughs> CM Punk is going to come back and fix everything. Yeah. Uh, thank you to our uh, Lord and <laughs> Lord and Savior CM Punk. Mm. Online fail. 
it, uh, it's interesting time for AEW. I, I feel it's interesting in the sense of with the TV, like in the last month or two, my AEW panic meter was up to like 20%. I feel like the pay-per-view brought up to like 40%. So it'll be interesting to see if it is just, oh, we're waiting to flick the switch for this huge summer. You know, it'll be interesting to see what Collision does, all of that. So, you know, I'm still not panicking. I thought Dynamite was pretty good. It was, kind of, you know, more, I didn't have as much of the of the problems that the TV's been plagued with in recent weeks. Yeah. And so I thought that was a backtrack, right back on track. But, um, I think Meltzer said that the pay-per-view looks like it's going to do similar to what the last pay-per-view did, Revolution. Except there, he was wondering, is it going to get the word-of-mouth late buys that Revolution did? Because apparently that's a show that did way more than usual on late on like replay buys because of the word-of-mouth. I don't, I don't think this show will be doing word-of-mouth buys unless people are really into the idea of those last two matches. But, I mean, it's an interesting time, and... Uh, yeah, it's probably this will probably be the least interesting part of the next three months. Yeah, as they, as the old Chinese proverb goes, may you book in interesting times. And Tony Khan is is very blessed to be booking in interesting times. But yeah, um, okay. So I guess before we like you know close it out, whatever. Do, do you think that there's a chance that MJF sits out Forbidden Door? Like listening to the scrum and the way things go, like it really seems difficult to think what do you do with him on that show because I can't see like putting the champion in a match or whatever. But I really don't know who he would wrestle and like what they would like. But it does feel like it, it was intentionally setting up where he's talking about he doesn't have any competition in the company that you would need like to give him competition from outside, but like, where do you guys see we end up going with like MJF, the champion going into forbidden door? Cause I don't see anything that seems clear and makes sense. Yeah. I don't think there's an obvious matchup for him. Um, and they don't really put this guy in like super prominent spots whenever they do these cars, but like, and I'm not sure how much they want him potentially being in a position to lose. I'm not sure how much they care at this point, but like, I don't know, maybe like maybe Naito. Like, I could maybe I could maybe see from like a guy that's like super lackadaisical can maybe throw Max off a bit. They could do like some like a little like a little bit of fun comedy stuff with Naito doing his tranquilo spots and uh, throwing Max off a bit and. Maybe turning it like turning you know, turning it on uh, in the cl- in the close in the closing stretch or whatever. So maybe I could see that. So it's not like a super duper uh, big thing. I guess, well, I guess maybe not because like if we book nights, how people are still gonna have expectations for that. So I'm not sure. Like I'm not opposed to Max setting out for the event and just and just not being on it because. There isn't like a clear cut direction for him, but like off the top of my head, like maybe Naito. Yeah, yeah, I think that's maybe the only name that makes sense when you think about. Um, I know our Fredericks on the Wrestling Observer board. Sometimes he posts stuff that is completely wrong, and sometimes he posts stuff that's right. He said that the rumor is Forbidden Door will be uh, Danielson Okada and Kenny Omega Osprey too, and I'm thinking like. 
if I'm like on one end, you feel like, well, MJF should be on for Bendor because if you look at the pre-sale tickets and all that stuff, it's going to be one of the biggest pay-per-views that isn't all in of the year. He's the world champ. You feel like he should be. And to just take him off to further this MJF hates New Japan goes kind of a waste. But then on the other end, you think he needs to be in a match you figure as world champion that's like significant that isn't him playing maybe fourth fiddle. And if Okada's busy elsewhere, and if um Osprey's busy elsewhere, and you know, if if Abushi's not on the card or busy elsewhere, perhaps I could see that. Like going to what Quentin said, like I think the only guy that kind of works even that fits that that checks that box all he's a big enough name that wouldn't feel like a complete letdown. It'd be a major match, would be Naito. But even then, like Quentin said, it's like maybe like it it kind of gets there. But I think anyone lower than that on the totem pole, I would be kind of like thinking, well, maybe if everyone else is booked up, maybe you do have them sit this one out, which would feel kind of weird. But do you really want it to be like MJF versus Sonata? Like Right. I, if I'm in chef, I'm rather being like I'm rather stay home. I'd ra- well, I'll I'll take this one off. Yeah. Um, well, my dream match is that MJF asks for Jake Lee, and somehow they make <laughs> that work just so just to really fuck with the whole like he doesn't like New Japan thing. But one thing in the scrum, he mentioned that he likes um, the Great Okan. I could see doing something like MJF. Great Okan and Cobb against FTR and CM Punk. And I could hey, see that's a good that idea, being actually. a good way to actually like work him into it, but give him a match that plays off of some history, but doesn't necessarily have to deliver a ton of stuff and continues possibly building to doing an, you know, the soccer Evan, former guest of the podcast dream match, which is uh, CM Punk versus max mjf at the wembley show so i could definitely I guess, see doing something like that i guess the one name i forgot about that maybe would work is i mean would people want to see i mean i'm sure they would but like mjf tanahashi like i i assume that probably a lot of wrestlers on the card are probably fighting over who gets to wrestle tanahashi because i think he's just that guy in so many of their minds he's a legend that doesn't have that many years probably right. as a that, but I mean, if, again, if you want to check that box, if it needs to be a major name, if you want to be a singles match, you know, he's a guy you probably do. Japan would be fine with him losing. You know, he is a major name. You could have MJF do some promo where he completely disrespects him. You know, I mean, it, it's an, it's an option, but I still feel like if Okada's busy elsewhere and Osprey's busy elsewhere, those are probably going to be like the top two matches, no matter what MJF does. And yeah, he might not want to be in that position. Like I said, I think if he ends up doing anything, he's going to do a multi-man bullshit thing that that's meant to just help build up his actual match at 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 Wembley, and then otherwise, just not being on the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, either way, ah, uh, there was like a ton of stuff that we that I forgot and I meant to get to, but we didn't. So either way, we'll we'll, we'll we always like you know have to get back to it. But you got uh, Trevor, of course. If you want to like uh, plug your podcast, I think everyone who's listening to this knows <laughs> the yeah the most uh, my po- podcast in the world. <laughs> my podcast is uh, through the years. T H R O H. 
We cover old Ring of Honor. We've done over 100 episodes. We uh, record tomorrow, in fact, another episode. Um, I thought, you know what? When we booked this, I thought you would be recording soon because I feel like you guys are due for an episode. So tomorrow, yeah. okay. And uh, yeah, my Twitter is at Trevor Dame, D-A-M as in Mother E. And then we have a, I have on my Twitter like a link tree to all my bullshit. But, you know, so that's that's that. It's easy enough. Quentin? Do you want to do what you do so well and close us out for the evening? Sure, of course. Uh, thank you, as always, to Trevor uh, for taking time out of his uh, extremely busy schedule of, of uh, CM Punk shit posting to really uh, <laughs> uh, join us here tonight. But you can follow me on Twitter at QT underscore Moody. You can follow... Tim at Arwich Dutch. You can follow the podcast network at WDKWPN. If you're feeling as so kind, so you could donate to us on coffee and you could fund our research into why this show sucks so fucking bad. I'm sorry, guys. I hated this show. I hated it. I, I, I really did, did not like this show. And I would like to know why it was so bad. So if you could donate to figuring that out, that would be appreciated. <laughs> but <laughs> but thank you but thank you guys for listening and I'll be here next time.
Casey. Dude, where's Casey? Bait, she's on the roof. You ready? Bait, she's hitting the vape. Thank 